Shabbat Shalom, salutations, bonjour. This is the Unexpected Cosmology, where the X marks the spot in Unexpected. I'm excited to be here tonight. Um, there's old faces, new faces. Great to see all of you. Rivka and I have been working extra hard on the Zora Kifa over the last few weeks. Uh, Rivka, of course, is 10 months old, and at this moment, she is incapacitated. I shouldn't say that. Actually, she is, I don't know, she's with her mother right now. So she is not here to share in the the fruits of her labor because the two of us have been researching this together. She's been on my lap uh, for the last month as I am feverishly going away on a line-for-line -line commentary, commentary on the Gospel of Peter, which is what I will be presenting to you guys tonight. Now, I, I feel a little bit off tonight because I have before me, like, here's my hands, right? I have before me this IMAX screen. I mean, it's, this is massive. It just came in the mail, and I don't even know what to do with this. Like, I don't need reading glasses anymore. Like, the words are the size of a human. Um, it's gigantic. So I, I'm, like, trying to <laughs> – I know you remember those old um, – uh, commercials in the 90s where like the the speakers are blasting and the people are falling out of their couch i kind of feel like that right now uh so anyways bizarre kifa started out as this one week study and i i don't know if it was just ignorance on my part or whatever but i said i'm going to knock bizarre kifa out it's a 60 something verse book i'm in one week i'm just going to do a line for line commentary of two weeks tops all right so I have to confess that I've been at it now full time uh, with a few short breaks here and there for a month. And I am only uh, 10, 12 verses into this. And, oh, you know what? I just realized, guys, um, not a good start till tonight. I have to drop the PDF into the room here. My apologies. I did drop it into the... Uh, into the other room. Let me do this real quick. This is the most, let me say this again. This is the most in-depth uh, commentary that I have ever written on any book. I, I didn't get all the way through Romans, but I was doing commentary like on a chapter to, you well, know, pretty much a chapter at a time. This is like five to six pages of commentary per verse. All right, you guys will see what, what I mean. Oh, but first, before we get started, I do want to remind you, this right here is The Earth, Not a Globe, Volume 1. This was a dream project of mine to get this uh, get this done. I've been wanting to do this for several years. The Earth, Not a Globe Review is the newspaper articles, writings of the 19th century Zetetics. If you don't know what a Zetetic was, that's what they called the Flat Earthist back in the 1800s. They were the Zetetics. Now everyone says Flat Earthers, but back then they were the Zetetics. And this is volume one. We came out with this last summer. Well, just yesterday, we were sending out uh, volume two. Um, Rebecca was amazing. She got volume two done. And we're going to be talking about this in a few weeks from now. Um, you guys will all be receiving this in the mail. So thank you for everyone that, um, that helps us here helps this ministry continue by being a subscriber to the TUC book club. And, you know, my big thing is that I want to get a product, to, something you can hold in your hand, tangible research every single month uh, for your contributions. And I think that's, uh, oh yeah. One more thing before I get going on Thursday night, 
I brought on John Q. Adams and Nephilim Hunter, and they talked about uh, their their conclusions of QAnon and how it plays out the short season. Well, I uploaded that on YouTube, but uh, for length of time, uh, for sake of time, I cut out 30 minutes, and uh, I cut out their 30 minutes of their personal testimonies to their faith journey and how they got to the flat earth, to Torah, to QAnon, and then to the millennial kingdom in short season and how they tied that all together. And so for those of you who are patron members, who are TUC book club members, that is an exclusive video that you can find um, on there. So uh, that's just another exclusive content. Thank you to you guys. So let's get right into this. You can see on here, page one, Bazora Kifa, a commentary by yours truly, Noel Joshua Hadley. And then there are the contents. This is what I have so far completed, uh, about 130 pages of commentary so far on, as I said, 13 verses. And we are obviously not going to get close to covering all this tonight. Bazora Kifa, an introduction. I'll try to set this down as quietly as possible. Dead men do tell tales especially when they are naughty enough to be buried with the fragment of a forbidden book. It would take the bones of a no-name Egyptian monk and French archaeologist Urban Berriant, I'm totally butchering the name, digging around in the modern city of Akmim, some 60 miles north of Nag Hammadi, to bring the lost gospel of Peter to light. The year was 1886, so here we have another post-mud flood discovery. Bizarre Kifa was the first non-canonical gospel to have been rediscovered in a post-medieval world, and interest was high. But then it was published after a several years delay, and everyone soon learned why some texts are quote-unquote lost in the first place. In one short passage, consisting uh, only of 60 surviving verses, as many as 29 variants were discovered between Kifa and the four canonical gospels. Oops, time to seal up the unsealed book, I guess. Now, I, I'd say that there's about 60 verses uh, that survived. Some people think that the entire book is intact. But as you will see, uh, my conclusion is not, that this is actually like maybe it would have been a couple chapters, maybe it was 14, 15 chapters, we don't know how long it would have been, uh, but this would have been the ending of the book, that uh, there would have been many more before that, and you'll, you'll maybe still a bit, see a little bit of what I'm talking about. The insult word of the day is heretical, so maybe, you know, there's your, uh, there's your scream word for the day. That is what most Orthodox persons will claim so as to wipe the discussion from their hands and be done with it. But I find no occasion for this sort of low, intelligent, potty language. If it is numerical points you are hoping to win on the, the Scrabble board, might I suggest you go with docetism? Or maybe it's docetism. We just had this discussion beforehand how I, I butcher every, everything. Yes, there is a big-sounding theological word, all right. Docetism is the uh, heterodox doctrine often fleshed out within the bodies of Gnostic texts, which describes the historical and bodily existence of Yahushua HaMashiach as being a mere semblance of humanity without any true reality. Understand it's not what I'm saying, nor am I implying that Bezorah Kifa is a docetic text, at least not in that context. 
Others are making the claim, not me. Maybe the Gnostics did believe that to be the case. More than likely, only some of them, and in varying degrees. So I use the word degree, but uh, it's, it's almost like you look at Christianity, how many denominations. You can't just say, like, all, all Christians believe this one doctrine, right? They, they all believe different doctrines. And we take all these different views among the Gnostics, and we mesh them together into one conglomerate. And I, I just disagree with that. I think that it, the, the past is much more... Uh, varied than that, much more complicated. It's easy to put everything into a package deal and just say they're they're heretics. But I, I some of them were, but certainly not all of them. I'm under the impression that a great many deal many of the early beliefs within Judeo Christian Christianity, all staking a claim to the mysteries of heaven, competed for dominance, but then fell to the wayside, more like into the catacombs, when Rome took the reins. Everyone else did not win the day. You will tell me good riddance and that the Nicene losers were heretical anyways. There is that word again. Well, then I would furthermore like to add for the consideration of the jury that his story is a two-way street. The early church with its various denominational views, yes, they did have many. I found that. Like everyone thinks that you go back to the first century and you'll just auto-correct everything. What did they believe in the first century? I think they had a lot of different views, and they were all vying for uh, to win the day. Let me say, say this again. The early church, with its various denominational views, would gaze upon us with our vying views and recoil at the modern-day heresy. Like that pipe and smoke it, why don't you? Already we are not starting th this commentary out on the right foot, are we? So much name-calling. That's what happens when you open up the books for a good old-fashioned Bible study, particularly the unapproved ones like the one we're opening up tonight. Though it is true that Bezora Kifa was shown the door by our Roman Catholic bouncers, it appears to have started out on somewhat good terms. Perhaps the oldest references that I can find derives from the second epistle of Clements, of all people, wherein we read the following. For Adonai says, you shall be as sheep in the midst of wolves. Kepha answered and said, What if the wolves shall tear in pieces the sheep? Yahushua said to Kepha, Let not the sheep fear the wolves after death, and you also fear not those that kill you, and after that have no more that they can do to you. But fear him who, after you are dead, has power to cast both Nefesh, soul, and body into Gehenna. Second Clement 3, 2. Uh, this will be a passage that I will quote from uh, a lot, actually. It's, it's one of the, I think, the themes of, of the Gospel of Kepha. What is particularly fascinating about Clement's quotation of Yahushua HaMashiach with Kepha is that similar quotes can be found in the Synoptic Gospels, namely Matthew 10, 16, and Lucas 12, 4 through 5. But neither of them are a perfect match to the book which the writer appears to be sourcing from. More importantly, Marcus, the supposed only authoritative gospel of Kepha, is not one of them. The scholars have long supposed Clement's reference to derive from the lost Bezora of Kepha, though I suppose that it, it has yet to be proven. We don't really know where this quote comes from, um, but it, the it seems to be coming from a dialogue between Kifa and uh, Yahusha, and so that's one of the conclusions people have, and I think it fits the, the theme of the book well from what we have. Uh, 
Interestingly enough, 2nd Clement includes quotations which can only be found in the Gospel of Tyone, Thomas, uh-oh, telling us that a great deal many of these naughty reads were readily available and publicly recited out loud in early congregations before they became dirty. I will quickly point out here, I might mention this later, but uh, Dr. Stephen Pidgeon, if for those of you who are Sefer fans, I was surprised. I was reading his um, commentary on Bezora Kifa, and his conclusion is that this was a very important book in the early church. Uh, I was really surprised to, I mean, that's my conclusions as well. I was just surprised to hear that from him, or maybe not so surprised. The next potential reference to Kifa's Lost Bezora derives from Justin Martyr, though this one is hotly debated, and here's his quote. And when it is said that he changed the name of one of the apostles to Kepha, and when it is written in the memoirs of him that this so happened, as well as that he changed the names of other two brothers, the sons of Zebedee to, uh, was that, Bonerges, which means sons of thunder. That comes from dialogue with uh, Trypho 106. It could be a typo. Maybe it's dialogue with Typho. Not sure. As you can plainly see, J.M. accredits his information regarding the name changes of Shimon and the two brothers as having derived directly from Kepha's own memoirs. Yes, memoir. That is the actual word which martyr uses rather than gospel. Feisty fellow. A memoir is a historical account or biography written from an individual's personal knowledge. It doesn't necessarily have to be written by the said individual, and Marcus, as we all know, was Kepha's main man. It does appear, however, as though uh, J.M. is, uh, I put Clement there, uh, I need to correct that, uh, J.M. is, a, uh, Justin Martyr is accrediting the name of the book to its author, Kepha. Am I reading that wrong? Apparently, I am not the only one, because here he is again, because many others, including Stephen Pigeon, of the Sefer believe uh, he is as well, that he is actually quoting from the long lost book of uh, Bezora Kifa. That being said, Matthew, Lucas, and Yochanan give no such reference to the name change, only Marcus does, specifically in Marcus 3, 16 through 17. I won't quote it here, you can go read it for yourself. I am delivering a chapter and verse so that you can look it up for yourself. It is quite possible that Clement is sourcing Marcus, but then again, it is entirely probable that Marcus would find reason to agree with Kepha's gospel. I have already noted the 29 variants in 60 short verses, though the narrative plays out very much as Marcus's Bezora does, telling us that the texts are closely related to the other. The Bezora of Kepha was furthermore referenced by uh, Serapion, Bishop of Antioch in 190, by... I just got criticized for reading it. This is wrong. Origin and 253. And, uh, and Eusebius, Bishop of Caesarea in 300. My own mods were on here kind of trying to shake my confidence before we got started. They're, they're lovely people and I love them very much. Big names. Seems as though Kepha's Bezora was readily available in the early years of the church, back when the conversation was still fresh and malleable. Perhaps the most interesting of references derives from a guy named Theodoritz, who in 455 wrote in his religious history that Kepha's Bezora was employed by, wait for it, the Nazarene. Well, there it is. Believe it or not, I have just given you the most likely reason why the book was quote-unquote lost 
from the bookshelves of the world because it was the cherished possession of a despised and highly persecuted people group. The same individuals who kept the Torah of Yahuwah and the testimony of Yahushua HaMashiach as per Revelation 14.12. They were enemies of the RCC, as was the Bezorah, which bore Kepha's name. They had other pieces of literature too, all of which is lost. They had a, a somewhat different canon than we do today. That's really interesting. There is more that I can say, and in fact, anxiously desire to tell, but also if there's anything I can't stand, it's giving away the best details in an introduction when what really needs to be done is a line-for-line -line commentary, which is why you showed up, and that's why I'm here, to take you through the process and give you the scoop. Don't thank me. Thank the no-name mock. And really, with 29 noted variations and 60 short verses, verses, I started out saying 60 short verses. I told you I thought I could do this in one week or two weeks, and like I'm like, oh, 60 short verses are not sounding so short anymore. You figure there is much to be discovered, which also just so happens to be why you arrived. One variant is too many, you will tell me, much less 29. H-E-R-E-T-I-C, heretic. Well, then you might want to grip onto that roll of toilet paper extra tight because being careful not to rip it out of the wall, hug it if need be, because I'm about to make the most controversial claim of all. The Nazarim held within their possession a document which testified to the lying pen of the scribes, and Rome can't have that. Somebody crucified the son of Elohim, all right, and it wasn't who you think. With that, we begin. So uh, I am putting here, uh, starting out this document with Bazor Kifa, a line for line. I'll go ahead and read through. Uh, I only put, how many, 14 verses in here, and I'm only adding them as I do commentary. I'll go ahead and read through the first 14 verses tonight just to um, familiarize all of you with this. And as a reminder, um, I am not in the chat room tonight. Please put your questions in there as you come along, your comments, uh, anything you encounter along the way, and we will go over it at the end of the presentation tonight. I will bring uh, Sarah up, and she will read them to you guys. It'll be a lot of fun. So here we go. And this, by the way, this is how the book begins. Uh, this is why I do not think that it began this way. It starts with the word but but of, and that doesn't sound like how you would start a book at all. But of the Yahudim, none washed their hands, neither Herod nor one of his judges. And since they did not desire to wash, Pilate stood up. And then Herod the king commanded that Adonai be taken, saying to them, what things I commanded you to do to him, do. There's your, uh, actually your second variation right there. But Yosef, the friend of Pilate and of Adonai, had been standing there, and knowing they were about to crucify him, he came before Pilate and requested the body of Adonai for burial. There's variation number three. We're only three verses in. And Pilate sent to Herod and asked for his body. And Herod said, Brother Pilate, even if no one has asked for him, we purpose to bury him, especially as the Sabbath draws near, for it is written in the Torah that the sun should not set upon one that has been put to death. And he delivered him to the people on the day before the Feast of Matzah, and they took Adonai and pushed him as they ran and said, let us drag away the sons of Elohim or the son of Elohim, having obtained power over him. And they clothed him with purple and set him on the seat of judgment, saying, judge righteously, O king of Yasharel. And one of them brought a crown of thorns and put it on the head of Adonai. 
and others stood and spat in his eyes, and others smote his cheeks. Others pricked him with a reed, and some scourged him, saying, With this honor, let us honor the son of Elohim. So that's as far as I'll read on the, the document tonight. Uh, we might cover verse 6. And this should be a very jarring experience for some of you because this it, it's very different than how we uh, typically read the Gospels, particularly the Passion. And um, I'm going to come to the defense of Bizarre Kifa and show you why it is not as wrong as many would claim. So here we go. Bizarre Kifa 1, if you need caught up, we are on page 9 of the document. And again, I'll read verse 1. But of the Yahudim, none washed his hands, neither Herod nor one of his judges. And since they did not desire to wash, Pilate stood up. For some of you, this will be review. Uh, I've said this many times before that if I don't go over, I can't just sit here and go, well, if you saw uh, episode 73 of my podcast and combined with episode 132, uh, you would know what I'm talking about. As soon as I don't repeat the details for you guys, somebody out there is going to make some snark remark on YouTube and think I, I don't know what I'm talking about. So there will be some review for you guys here for those of you who are regular uh, uh, attendees. Pontius Pilate washes hands of the entire affair, but you knew that already. However, it is his innocence which seems to enter in one ear and then fly right out the other. Washing his hands is the same thing as saying he didn't do it. Yahushua HaMashiach was off by someone. There is no question about that, but it wasn't him. Pontius Pilate is a patsy. You have probably arrived to disagree again, as there is nothing new under the sun. But then I will ask, what is the purpose of washing one's hands of the entire affair if the said individual still goes through with it? That makes no sense whatsoever. It certainly never did to me reading the Gospels. Look, you either wash your hands and remove yourself from the uh, unraveling train wreck, or you don't and then continue dirting them, which is precisely what the first surviving passage of Kepha's Gospel reads. It opens within moments or even seconds of Pilate washing his hands when neither the, the Yahudim nor Herod and his judges were willing to scrub their own, though the governor of Yehuda had prompted them to do it. Hmm. I wonder why that is. We will have to keep reading to see how this unfolds. And just so that there's no confusion, Pilate already told us why he washes hands in the Gospel of Matthew, which reads in chapter 27, verse 24, when Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. You know, it's funny. It's, I've read a lot of commentary in scripture about the small number of people who are listed as being a just person in the New Testament. And obviously Yahushua is one of them, but I've never seen anyone quote Pilate saying that. I wonder why that is, because people think, you know, bad of Pilate. But Pilate is saying that he's a, he's a righteous person. So think about that. It, saw, it says Pilate was no longer capable of reasoning with the crowd, seeing as how they had risen to tumult conditions. He therefore washes hands in water, but not without doing so in sight of the multitude. Washing his hands before a host of witnesses was his pronouncement of judgment. Yahushua HaMashiach was innocent of all accusations, certainly not worthy of the death sentence. His line of logic couldn't be any clearer. 
I am innocent of the blood of this just person. That's his judgment. A just person is someone who is judged to be in the moral right. It's the same thing as calling him righteous. In Hebrew terms, being just or righteous is, quote, conforming to the custom, unquote, of the Torah. What he was ultimately implying to the writing crowd is that they were the ones who had misjudged Yahushua, not him. The most important part can be found in the second leg of his statement. He says, see ye to it. Who is ye exactly? The Yahudim is who. Wait, hold on. Am I expected to believe that Pilate is giving the Yahudim permission to execute Messiah on their own, but then follows through with their demands anyways, and he is the one who ends up committing the deed, not them? Is that what I'm expected to believe? Why, yes, I am expected to believe that. Ridiculous. To do so, wash one's hands, but still go through with it, would be to live in denial. His hands would still be dirty. His gesture null and void. That is why his transition is so important to the narrative. See ye to it. It is precisely in this moment where the sleight of hand happens, but very few seem nor care to notice. Delivering Hamashiach over to the Yahudim so that they can be the one to play judge, jury, and executioner is literally part of Yahushua's sentence. And here is the follow-up in Matthew 27, 25. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and our children. Oops. A guilty conscience isn't the only transfer which the Yahudim are accepting into themselves. They are pleased that Pilate is handing over the body of Yahushua because now it is their opportune moment to judge and execute him according to the desires of their hearts. And no, not even the Roman soldiers strung him up. That's why you were feverishly flipping through the pages of the Bible just now to show my error. Well, believe it or not, I have copies of the Gospels in my possession, which back up Kepha's Gospel. One thing at a time, though. We'll get there. A lot of, most of you already know where I'm going with that. Because you were there for episode, you know, 76 or whatever. Washing one's hands started from the seat of judgment and trickled its way down through the ranks. Pilate soldiers were not interested in appeasing the mob when apparently fulfilling scripture. Time and again, that is how they are depicted, but it's simply not true. It's why we are having this conversation. What I intend to show is that Pilate is innocent of any and all accusations regarding the crucifixion. By necessity, his judgment as to Yahushua's innocence would involve a hands-off approach from the Roman soldiers, meaning they wouldn't be nailing him to a tree anytime soon. If Basically, if the governor says he's innocent and I'm not killing him, the Roman soldiers aren't killing him. That's the way it works. If Pilate says he's guilty and we will crucify him, then the Roman soldiers would do it. You see, it has to be somebody else doing it. Let's see. If Pilate is guilty of any crime, it's diplomacy. He didn't protect someone whom Rome had already deemed innocent. You will see what I mean as Kephas Bazora continues. Already, some of you might be sweating bullets and you see exactly why uh, this book was buried. Uh, I, I think th they didn't necessarily have to bury this book if they had control of, of like multitude of copies and maybe they could change it. But I think it was in the hands of the Nazarene, not so easily done. So they had to bury it. 
Bezorah Kepha, verse 2. And then Herod the king commanded that Adonai be taken, saying to them, What things I commanded you to do to him, do. I read that so nonchalantly. I should have read that more serious because that is, uh, that's huge. Speak of the devil. We are only two verses in, and already there is your first major deviation from the canonical Gospels. Herod the king is our responsible party member, whereas Pilate has stepped away, having scooted his chair from the table. Which Herod are we talking about, though? There were many Herods, so many in number, that they are referred to as the Herodian dynasty. Herod the Great was born in 72 BCE and died somewhere in between 4 and 1 BCE. Therefore, it cannot be him. Though his attempt on the life of Mashiach while a babe should not be overlooked in all of this. Herod Antipas was born sometime before 20 AD and died soon after 39. This was the same Herod who offed Yocan in the baptizer. The issue was initially over Antipas divorcing his first wife, uh, Phasilis. I'm sure it's a beautiful name that I butchered. I'm sure it's a perfectly lovely name. The daughter of King Aretas IV of Nabatia country I've never heard of, honestly, in favor of Herodias, who was married to his living brother, Herod II, at the time. So he he uh, divorces his wife to marry another wife who's married to his brother. That's a big naughty no-no in the Torah. Marry your brother's wife while the brother yet breathes is in direct violation of Leviticus 18.16. That's what Yochanan, the baptizer, was criticizing him for because, of course, the Torah abides. Why wouldn't he? But then again, criticized the king on his birthday and his well role. Antipas wasn't exactly Herod the Great's first choice either. Originally, that honor fell upon Aristobulus and Alexander, his other two sons, through the Hasmonean princess Meramni. Meriamni. There, I think I got that. Complications would arise after he ordered their execution by strangling in 7 BC. What an interesting way to to kill your sons. I order your execution by way of strangling by the biggest, meaty, meatiest hands that I can find in my kingdom. I guess that would imply he had a change of heart as to his two sons ruling in his stead. Herod then turned to his next in line, Antipater. Things were going swell, we are told, until he was convicted of trying to poison his father in 5 BC. Wonderful family. Herod had little choice but to select his youngest son, Antipas. He was like, you know, he's like the, the Chris Farley of the family. You know, like not the, not the guy you want running the dynasty. In fact, we find that so many of these Herods were being killed off, who were probably very good rulers, uh, that the imbeciles ended up running the family into the ground. They basically turned to like the, the weakest, you know, the guy with the dunce cap in the corner and yeah, they run into the ground. We'll get into that tonight. The only problem with this selection you see is that Antipas was a bit of an incompetent nincompoop, uh, to put it uh, in writer terms. I need to use that word more often, nincompoop. That's a good word. It was during Herod's illness, illness in 4 BC by which he died of a disease diagnosed by modern science as, and I quote, a chronic kidney disease complicated by a very uncomfortable case of maggot-infested gangrene of the genitals. I got that on Google. That uh, sounds lovely. Herod once again had a change of heart. According to the final version of his will, Antipas' elder brother, um, 
Archelaus would become king of Yehuda, Idumia, and Samaria, whereas Antipas would rule Galil, that's Galilee, and Peria, that's like uh, modern-day Jordan. Uh, like, uh, you know, Dead Sea, or I should say, I think Petra uh, area. Antipas pr protested the legal arrangement of Rome, but in the end, so he actually went all the way to Rome and he protested with Caesar. Uh, but Caesar Augustus honored the last-minute rendition to Herod's will and testament. You will tell me Herod Antipas wasn't a king. And if so, then you would be correct this time around. He wasn't one. He was a tetrarch. The title of tetrarch was inferred upon him by Augustus. Darn, I guess that means Kepha's Bezora has already discredited itself. But wait, the Bible does refer to him as a king, though. And we see this in Matthew. 14, 6 through 9. But when Herod's birthday was kept, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod, whereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatsoever she would ask. And she said, being before instructed of her mother, said, give me here Yehuchanan, the baptizer's head in a charger. And the king, there it is, was sorry. I will remind you, he's not a king, but it says the king. Nevertheless, for the oath's sake, and then which sat with them to eat, he commanded it to be given her. The Greek word basilius has 48 occurrences in the Greek New Testament and is an undeniable reference to a king. Even, uh, and I put the Greek in there, even Herod Agrippa, grandson of Herod the Great, through his strangled son Aristobulus, is listed as a king in Acts 25.13 and 26.26-30. Though technically, he appears to have actually been a king, according to historians, the later, the later Herod Griffin, not the one we're dealing with. Meanwhile, the Greek word tetrarch refers to a ruler over a fourth part of a region. I checked. There is not one single reference to a tetrarch in the NT. My point in all of this is that Kepha lists Herod and Tepes as a king, and Matthew lists him as a king, even if he wasn't technically a king. Contrarily, there is no reference that I can find which accredits Pontius Pilate with being uh, a king. And so look at what Yeshayahu had to say about the king. Uh, just so you're not lost, we're reading now from Ascension of Yeshayahu. That's Ascension of Isaiah. Stopping for a drink of coffee. And when he, Mashiach, had grown up. He worked great signs and wonders in the land of Yasharel and of Yerushalayim. And after this, the adversary envied him and roused the children of Yasharel against him, not knowing who he was. And they delivered him, Mashiach, to the what? To, it's right there, the king, and crucified him. And he descended to the angel of Sheol. In Yerushalayim, indeed, I saw him being crucified on a tree, Ascension of Yeshayahu 11, 18 through 20. Now, I, I, I will point out, I might say this, but I, I think this is, you know, obviously I believe Ascension of Isaiah is legit. I love this book. Even if it was written Christian era, as many people claim, pay attention. Well, why aren't they, why aren't they talking about the governor of, of Judah? Why aren't they talking about the Roman governor? They talk about the king. They're being very specific here as to who crucified him. This one slipped through the cracks. They didn't change this text. Conclusively, Hamashiach was delivered to a king. That's not a reference to the governor of Yehuda. But Zorakifa does not name Pilate a king, nor do any of the Gospels. I think we can safely assume that no writer of scripture 
at least none that I have seen, confuse the Roman governor as one of them. And so now we have two witnesses claiming a king was responsible for Mashiach's crucifixion, Kepha and Yeshiahu. Kepha personally names him. And what do we see here? A fun little uh, clipping from the Wikipedia. You know, that's a favorite of mine. The Herodian dynasty was a royal dynasty of the Edomite descent, ruling the Herodian kingdom of Judea and later the Herodian tetrarchy as a vassal state of the Roman Empire. The Herodian dynasty began with Herod the Great, who assumed the throne of Judea with Roman support, bringing down the century-old Hasmonean kingdom. His kingdom lasted until his death in four, and then I cut it out there. We're also going to go on and on and on. There's something else you should know. The Herodian dynasty was a royal regime of Edomian descent. Those are the Edomites. I can at least pronounce the Edomites correctly. Uh-oh. The Wikipedia even makes the connection for us. Shocking, I know. They don't usually do that, but they do this time. The question you might be having is how something like that came about. Perhaps you will give the historian Josephus a chance to explain the situation. And this is what he says in Antiquities 13.9, everybody's favorite Roman spook, uh, Josephus. Um, Hyrcanus took also Dora and Marissa, cities of uh, Edumia, I believe that's in Jordan, and subdued all the Edomians, and those, of course, the Edomites, and permitted them to stay in that country if they would circumcise their genitals and make use of the laws of the Jews. And they were so desirous of living in the country of their forefathers that they submitted to the use of circumcision and of the rest of the Jewish ways of living, at which time, therefore, this befell them, and they were hereafter no other than Jews. Of course, this is a whole can of worms that I'm not even going down tonight. I'll touch on some of it. The story of the Edomites becoming Jews is explained through Hasmonean high priest John Hyrcanus, um, who lived apparently from 164 to 104 BC, BCE, who conquered the uh, Idumeans, the Edomites, and forced them to convert to Judaism. What we have before us is something biblical. Tracing Herod to the Edomites is no different than calling him an Esau. You see, it's just incredible that like when people talk about the passion and who killed Mashiach, they don't put this together. This isn't just a Jewish thing. This is an Esau thing. And so I, I will refer you to the story of the Yaakov or Yaakov and Esau's birth. They were twins. Recall how it went down in Beersheba. That would be Genesis 25-26. Their battle had begun in the womb. Esau was for, uh, born first. Yaakov followed holding his heel. Some have suggested Esau was attempting to kill his brother in the womb, leaving Yaakov to defend for himself. I am of the opinion that it was Hasatan's attempt at reverse engineering the prophecy first given to him in Beersheba 3.15. Yahuwah promised to crush his head, though he, the serpent, would in turn strike his heel. That happened at Yahushua's crucifixion, but you knew that already. Well, look at what Esau was up to in the birth canal. He was doing some head crushing. Eventually, Yaakov would win the day, convincing Esau to sell his birthright for a bowl of soup. 
not that he ever believed it anyways, that Genesis Targum tells us that he had already despised his birthright on the basis that he denied the world to come. And this is what the uh, Genesis Targum, uh, tw chapter 25, has to say. Again, this is review for some of you, but it's important to go over all this information. Again, to get the, the fullest of the picture here. On the day that Abraham died, Yaakov dressed pottage of lentils and was going to comfort his father. And Esau came from the wilderness exhausted, for in that day he had committed five transgressions. He had worshipped with strange worship. Uh, those would be idols. He had shed innocent blood. He had gone in unto a betrothed damsel, which probably all three of those were related. He had denied the life of the world to come and had despised the birthright. And Esau said to Yaakov, let me now taste that red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore he called his name Edom. And Yaakov said, sell today as on this very day what thou wouldst hereafter appropriate, my birthright unto me. And Esau said, behold, I am going to die. And in another world I shall have no life. And what then to me is the birthright or the portion in the world of which thou speakest? And Yaakov said, Swear to me today that so it shall be. And he swear to him and sold his birthright to Yaakov. And Yaakov gave to Esau bread and pottage for lentils. And he ate and drank and arose and went. And Esau scorned the birthright and the portion of the world that comes. And the sons of Esau would spend the rest of their life regretting that decision, and Esau would too. Uh, there's certainly more to the complexity of his character, but that's really where Edom's story begins. Esau was read all over, but also the pottage was read, and Yaakov made a spiritual self-serving connection between the two, thereby calling him Edom, which means the same thing, read all over. Like the Herods after him, Esau was filling his stomach for the world he inhabited and no other. To his dying day, he would resent that decision without ever once seeking repentance, at least not that I found. And in the millennia since, his descendants have never forgotten. What's particularly interesting about the exchange between Yaakov and Esau is that it mirrors the very conversation which brought about Havel's death at the hands of Cain. Classic story, Cain and Abel. Uh, this is, once again, the Targum. And uh, yeah, I'll go ahead and read this whole section here. And Cain said to Havel, his brother, come and let us two go forth into the field. And it was that when they two, when they two had gone forth into the field, that Cain answered and said to Havel, I perceive that the world was created in goodness, but it is not governed or conducted according to the fruit of good works, for there is respect to persons in judgment. Therefore, it is that they, thy offering was accepted and mine not accepted with goodwill. Havel answered and said to Cain, In goodness was the world created, and according to the fruit of good works is it governed. And there is no respect of persons in judgment. But because the fruits of my work were better than thine, my oblation before thine hath been accepted with goodwill. Cain answered and said to Havel, There is neither judgment nor judge, nor another world, nor will good reward be given to the righteous, nor vengeance be taken of the wicked. Now I'll pause here and just say that like, some someone might criticize this for like nobody's that honest I, you know he's literally like you know what you believe is what you do right so cause and effect you believe something you do it and so he's basically like speaking what everyone ultimately believes who lives a wicked life that they're going to live this life there is no judgment to come they're not going to be called it's not going to be called uh into account and Havel answered and said to Cain, there is a judgment and there is a judge and there is another world and a good reward given to the righteous and vengeance taken of the wicked. 
And because of these words, they had contention upon the face of the field. And Cain rose against Habel, his brother, and drave a stone into his forehead and killed him. And so you're going to see that this is the same attitude that the sons of Edom had with Yehusha HaMashiach. Ultimately, um, you have to really question how many of them actually believed um, maybe even in the, the world to come, the judgment to come, those coming against them. And that That's actually very, I don't really build a case for that, I don't think in here, but that's very clear in Romans. When you read Romans chapter 2 and 3, Paul is all over saying, you guys think that you can live however you want and, and Elohim is just going to judge the Goyim? Like, you're wrong. He's coming for you first. That's straight out of Romans. He's saying, judgment is coming to this house first and you will be judged. And ultimately, they didn't believe that. The defining difference between the two accounts is that Cain killed Havel to aid Hasatan in discontinuing the messianic seed, whereas Esau plotted murder again to exterminate the said seed, but only after their father was dead. Still worked for the same master, though. For reasons which Bereshith and Yasher further expound upon, but need it be detailed here, Esau never got around to finishing the deed. Unlike Havel, Yitzhak continued the promised lineage of Abraham through the bringing forth of the 12 patriarchs and so on and so on, meaning that his seed was not destroyed, even though there was attempt made on it. And anyways, another clear connection between the two sets of brothers is that Yaakov thought like a Sethite, whereas Esau only had the cities of Cain on his mind. That's a huge theme with um, the Edomites of Herod's time. Abraham had been educated in the house of Shem. Afterwards, Yitzhak received his education there, whereas Ishmael refused to have a part in it. The same can be said of Yaakov and Esau. This comes from Jasher. At that time, Yitzhak sent his younger son Yaakov to the house of Shem and Eber, and he learned the instructions of Yahuwah. And Yaakov remained in the house of Shem and Eber for 32 years, and Esau, his brother, did not go, for he was not willing to go. And he remained in his father's house in the land of Canaan. It comes from chapter 28, 18, if you need a reference. If you read my paper on the altar of Yahuwah, then you'll know by now that the house of Shem was located on Mount Zion. Uh, and just as importantly, that Mount Zion acted as a sort of portal leading towards paradise. Um, my research on this, on Zion, this is going off the point, but, you know, talking a lot to Miss Pamelon here and really blown away about this idea that Mount Zion was uh, actually a movable mountain. Uh, if when you dig into the paleo, it's, really interesting so you know people mock this story about you know shim on the school of shim on mount zion and i have stated for some time that this there's something more going on here he's ascended by this point uh he's not a, a he's not a mortal uh people will say there's no way he could live that long well yeah something else was going on shim of course was a mckilzadek by the time that yaakov entered shim school it was probably located in paradise rather than Zion, which tells us what Esau was purposely snubbing. I mean, think about that. I, I made the case in my paper, The Altar of Yahuwah, at this time, I believe Shem School was in paradise. And Esau didn't want to go there. This is the guy who said there is no afterlife. All right. So think about how far he had fallen. It's the kingdom of heaven. All right. What I had, what I, Failed to mention in that paper is an obvious contrast between Mekilzedek and Nimrod. Rather than simply visiting paradise by way of the doorway in Shem's school, Nimrod attempted to build a portal to heaven by way of lawlessness. That's the story of humanity right there, but also of Edom and his descendants. 
leading us all the way down the line to the Herods. Probably everybody knows the story concerning Yaakov tricking his father Yitzhak into handing him the blessing intended for Esau. The story comes to us by way of Beersheath chapter 27. Technically, it was Rivka. I love that name, of course. That's the name of my daughter. Technically, it was Rivka who advised her son on how to go about doing it. And even that came through the intervention of the Ruach HaKadosh. After a dim-eyed Yitzhak learned that the venison he ate was delivered from Yaakov and not Esau, whom the blessing had been intended for, he then offered a rather interesting prophecy for Esau. And it says in Beersheath, Genesis chapter 27, verse 39 onwards, And Yitzhak his father answered and said to him, Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth and of the dew of heaven from above, and by your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother, and it shall come to pass when you shall have the dominion, that you shall break his yoke from off your neck. And Esau hated Yaakov because of the blessing wherewith his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, The days of mourning my father are at hand. Then I will slay my brother Yaakov. Incredible as I'm like putting these pieces together and going, how are people not connecting this in the Passion account? Unbelievable. The Aramaic Targum phrases it quite differently. Rather than bringing his father Yitzhak clean venison, the word of Yahuwah had impeded him so that Esau only managed to kill an unclean dog for food. He cut it up and offered it anyways. Disgusting. Uh, to Yitzhak, the meat placed before him smelled of Gehenna. You have to wonder if... <laughs> Apparently now all food is clean and it doesn't smell of Gehenna. You know, there's some cognitive dis dissonance for you. Uh, and here we read, starting in verse 39, same text, chapter 27. And Yitzhak answered and said to Esau, Behold, among the good fruits of the earth shall be thy habitation, and with the dews of the heavens from above, and up upon thy sword shalt thou depend, entering at every place. Yet thou shalt be supple and credulous, and be in subjection to thy brother. But here's the key right here. But it will be that when his sons become evil and fall from keeping the commandments of the Torah, Thou shalt break his yoke of servitude from off thy neck. Hmm. Let's skip the rest of that there, jumping to page 21. And so, according to the Targum, it is only after the sons of Yaakov became evil that Esau will break the yoke of servitude from his neck. How might Yaakov's descendants become evil? I'm glad you asked. That same passage tells us they do away with the Torah of Yahuwah, you know, repeat that sentence several times if you have to, and claim it is no longer applicable to their lives. Sound familiar? It should. Christians proclaim this point from the pulpit like Hitler at a Nuremberg rally. As a result, the sons of Yaakov were tossed from the land, making it possible for the sons of Esau to move in like squatters. Deductive reasoning is easy on this one. Herod, ruling over the Yahudim, tells us that the remaining sons of Yashorel we're not being obedient to the Torah. The hatred which Esau harbored against Yitzhak continued until the end of their days, but even afterwards, still the animosity did not cease. Several chapters later, we learned that Esau's descendants were a people referred to as the Edomites in Genesis 36, 43. 
Some centuries down the road, the fires of hatred remained hot on the front burner as the Edomites did not allow Moshe and the children of Yeshua passage through, through their land during the exodus from Mitraim. And we see that in Numbers 2021. 20, you can look that up for yourself. When Edom confronted them with their army, Yahuwah instructed Moshe that they stand down from battle as Edom's judgment had not yet arrived. And uh, we read here, and uh, this is in the Targum again. Numbers 20. But he said, you shall not pass through. And Edom came out to meet him with a large army and with a strong hand. So Edom would not suffer Yasharel to pass through his coast. And Yasharel turned away from him because it was commanded from before the word of the heavens that they should not set battle and array against them. For as much as the time was not yet come when the punishment of Edom should be given into their hands. How very rude. You can think about that or drink more coffee. How very rude. Edom would not even let Yasharel pass through on the highway so that they might take up their inheritance. By the way, uh, the Unexpected Cosmology, the former name of the website, was Always the Highway. And people criticize me, like, you're, you're talking about the, 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 the wide road, you know, the highway to hell. I was like, no, no it's, it's literally from this passage here, the King's Highway. Our way is the highway. We're trying to pass through the promised land. Very few people picked up on that. So I think I have a better uh, a branded name change now. The same one that their patriarch father had forsaken for a loaf of bread, that Edom. That was far from the end of it, though. Their contempt for Yashrael only continued in the following centuries, particularly when Edom made an open and rather contemptuous attempt at conquering Yashrael during uh, the rule of Yahushaphat. That's a fun name, without success. The Edomites later teamed up with a Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and that was a success. You can read about it and attempt to fill in the pieces in 2 Chronicles chapters 35 through 36, as I won't be going over those details here. A confirmation of their involvement, however, is given in several different passages, one of which is First Esdras, which says, you, have, you also have vowed to build up the temple which the Edomim, or the Edomites, burned when Yehuda was made desolate by the Kazdim. The Kazdim would be the Babylonians. Oh, I say right there, the Kazdim are the same as the Chaldeans, which again is just another name for the Babylonians. History may record the people of Babel as responsible, but as you can clearly see, the prophets finger Edom as their conspirator. Remember that part. His story likes to pull back curtains in places where our controllers would, would rather leave alone. Well, the same event is detailed in Psalm 137. Follow along. Looks like I have it side by side here. Okay, so I have the Masoretic text with the Aramaic Targum. Remember, O Yahuwah, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. And then we see over here in the Targum, said Mekael, that would be Michael the archangel, prince of Jerusalem. Remember, O Yahuwah, the people of Edom who laid waste Jerusalem, who said, destroy, destroy to the foundations of it. There it is again. I'm giving you two separate versions of Psalm 137, and the Edomites are identified as the second shooter in both of them. I bring up their involvement in the Targum because the destruction of Edom is relayed to us from a heavenly perspective. The actual line derives from the archangel Mikael, Yasharel's protector. 
It is he who calls out the conspirators. And so what have we learned so far? Esau's life was one of one of directed hatred towards brother Yaakov. The trouble really began in the womb, but it was Esau's disbelief in Elohim and the kingdom of heaven, which caused him to chuck his spiritual inheritance for a meal. I skipped tons of stuff on the two of them, though I think the point was made because obviously this is not a study on them. It's supposed to be a commentary on, second, on uh, the Zorakifa. Afterwards, the Edomites refused to let Yeshuel pass on the highway so that they might collect their inheritance. And then lastly, they had an active role in conspiring against Yeshuel with Babylon, going so far as to burn Shaloma's temple to a crisp. There is more to the story, though, so hang with me here. All right. Now, again, this is going to be a review for some of you. I actually gave this presentation in January, but I thought this was such interesting information. And again, this all ties in with the Passion Account and 70 AD that I'm going to repeat, read this again for you guys, word for word of this, of this lecture uh, and uh, help you tie in the pieces, how it all connects, all of it. Every, so much of what I've been talking about just connects with uh, the Zora Kifa. Even the horror of Babylon comes into this. You probably weren't thinking that would be the case when committing to a line-for-line -line commentary on Bezora Kifa. Herod's part in Mashiach's cru crucifixion really cracks the case wide open, and it, and it needs to be said, or in my case, repeated. Everything I have recently mentioned relates to the Herods. Herod the Great made a go-at-the-head-crushing scheme while Mashiach was but an infant, just as Esau attempted with Yaakov in the womb. You see, you see the significance? The, uh, the similarities don't end there, though. Herod Antipas, as you now know, pulled the trigger on Mashiach's crucifixion. We have seen that in Bezora Kifa too. But then there is another interesting connection, which nobody that I am aware of has so far made. The burning of the second temple. The second, we already talked about the first temple. That was done by the Edomites. Well, guess what? So it was the second temple. It would later become known as Herod's Temple, as if that's not ironic, because, because that too would be destroyed at the hands of the Edomites, specifically a Herod. I actually have this big thing, a presentation I've been wanting to give for a couple of years on how uh, the, the, the Pharisees, I believe, were actually funding this. This will sound like impossible to a lot of you. Uh, but I believe the Pharisees were trying to take control away from the Sadducees who held uh, authority in the temple and that the Pharisees actually helped find to destroy the uh, temple through the, the war of the Jews. Uh, the Sadducees were done at that time. The Pharisees took over, hence modern Judaism. And, and no, I do not believe that they want to lose control to the Sadducees with the third temple. There's been a reason they've been delaying it. Just about everyone gets the identity of the whore of Babylon wrong, and I can't fault them for it. I did too for the longest time. Had Revelation been covered at nearly any other point during my adult life, I would have sat here and made a semi-remus connection, seeing as how the, the woman from Yulcanan's book exhumes all the familiar markings of the mystery religions, and in turn, the mystery religions ultimately derive from Babylon, obviously. Uh, of course, Babylon was a part of destroying the temple the first time too, so plenty of connections. I don't think that explanation is wrong. It's simply not the whole of it when in fact the most obvious explanation has been slapping and assaulting us throughout the prophets. I dropped your very first clue very early on when speaking about the destruction of Shaloma's temple. The destruction of Herod's temple was a repeated event. And why is that? I think you already know the answer. 
but I'll direct your attention to the prophets anyhow. So where is this from? This is um, Yermiyahu, Jeremiah chapter 3. Here we go. They say, if a man put away his woman and she go from him and become another man, shall he return unto her again? Shall not that land be greatly polluted? But you have played the harlot with many lovers, yet return again to me, says Yahuwah. I'm actually not sure where I'm going with this. So we'll find, we'll find out. Yahuwah said also unto me in the days of Yoshiyahu, Yoshiyahu, the king, have you seen that which backsliding Yisrael has done? She has gone up upon every high mountain and under every green tree, and there has played the harlots. And I said after she had done all these things, turn you unto me. But she returned not, and her treacherous sister Yehuda saw it. And I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding Yisrael broke Whitlock, I had put her away and given her a sephir of divorce. And her treacherous sister Yehuda feared not, but went and played the harlot also. And it came to pass through the lightness of her whoredom that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and with stocks. And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Yehuda hath not turned unto me with her whole heart, but faintedly, uh, says Yahuwah. And uh, amazing that very few people put this together with uh, 70 AD. I'm pouring myself some more brewed um, beans. Everything which needs stated regarding the horror has just been made. It's all there. Yashirel had already played the part of the harlot when Yermiyahu gave Yehuda her final warning. It says Yashirel had broken wedlock and that she had furthermore been handed a separate divorce. That's referring to 10 of the 12 tribes, Reuven, Shimon, Yishakar, Zebulun, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Ephraim, and Manasseh. They were all divorced and removed from the land by this point. Only Yehuda, Levi, or Levi, and Benjamin, Benjamin had remained. It doesn't surprise me in the least that most Christians haven't the faintest clue about this sort of thing. The Jews, though, you would think they might be educated on the subject with all those bar mitzvah parties, but no. The Jews often get insulted at the menorah I light in my window when I am not being outright snubbed. They will, they see me wearing tassels under strips, snub me. And he have even let me know I am a goy and therefore not permitted to these sort of religious rites. Inciting the divorce of Yashrael is an explanation for the people whom I'm grafted into sends nearly everyone into an anthropological tailspin. Uh, I'd be grafted in through Ephraim, of course. You guys know that. Sometimes a, uh, a religious crisis ensues, mostly because the Jews have their own special invite-only club, and just about everyone seems content with the arrangement. Nearly a month ago, uh, at the time I originally wrote this. Uh, this actually would have been December of last year. A self-declared Jewish woman, totally appalled that a goy would incite the name of the Most High, uh, finally confessed that she had never heard about the Yashrael divorce issue before and thought that they had all been Jews going all the way, way back to Moshe. So she thought Moshe was a Jew, had no clue about that he came from Levi. Uh, what do they teach in schools nowadays? Apparently not uh, not that. Yasharel had become the harlot and was therefore divorced. In case you were wondering, that's a problem. Yahuwah keeps to his law, even if the Christians have done away with it, which is probably why I have never heard its divorce command taught by the boys down at seminary. I'm not saying nobody from seminary has discussed the topic, and I'm sure they have. It's just that their numbers aren't looking good. 
for something that is such a huge, uh, very recognizable theme in scripture, a very important theme. I mean, it warns us in the Torah. We'll see this right here in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. It says in chapter 20, when a man has taken a woman and married her and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a suffer of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's woman. So that answers the question right there for the people who say that you cannot marry a divorced wife. Well, the Torah says you can. And if the, if the later man hate her and write her a separate divorcement and gives it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the, the later man died, which took her to be his woman, her former man, the first husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his woman. After that, she is defiled, for that is abomination for Yahuwah, and you shall not cause the land to sin, which Yahuwah Elohim gives you for an inheritance." The Torah states in no uncertain terms that a woman is not allowed to return to her husband if he divorces her and she takes another man. Contrarily, a woman may return to her husband if adultery were not the cause and she refrained from taking another man after the divorce. So she stays single and he can take her back. But that obviously wasn't the case with Yasharel. They had already been whoring after other Elohim, according to the prophets. It was a trend which evidently continued. Should those other Elohim and the surrounding nations tire of the harlot, Yahuwah had no legal rights to restore her to the land. The land, according to the law, the Torah, that, that's what it says, the, the land would be defiled. The land is a key ingredient in all this. It is the land of inheritance given to the wilderness generation, which Yasharel could not return to. Now, I, I hold to that. Some people might disagree with me. I, I think the land is done with. No, never again. A, a divorce from the land is final. Otherwise, should they return in bulk, the land would be defiled, and that is an abomination to Yahuwah. It's not like this goes into 70 AD territory. I think, I think it's done. Uh, there, there's other land to go to, but not that. It's not like Yasharel was left hanging, though. They most certainly were given another land to inherit. I have detailed its likely location in my people, the covenant paper. You guys are, most of you are familiar with that. You'll have to read that to see where I'm thinking. That's another story altogether, and I don't want to get distracted. Because <laughs> I'm kind of like going way over here now. Uh, the point is that they could never return. And in fact, as his story has shown, Yahuwah never brought them back. 1948 was not his bringing them back. No way, no how. And so pay careful attention to Yermiyahu's warning. He was reminding the Yahudim of the Torah when insisting that they also were polluting the land. And therein lies the tension. If they kept up with their charades, then Yahuwah may just go ahead and hand them a bill of divorce as well. And, of course, that's what I believe Revelation is telling us, um, chronicling that, that uh, removal from the land. For your creator will be your husband, Yahuwah of heaven's armies is his name. He is your redeemer, the Holy One of Yashua, the Elohim of all the earth, Yeshayahu 54.5. As you see there, what I wanted you to see is that he is the husband. In dropping the Yeshayahu passage into the discussion, I am simply trying to establish the fact that Yasharel had a marriage covenant with Yahuwah Elohim. For those of you who linger in doubt, the sefer of divorcement principle is applicable to the man and his woman just as assuredly 
as it is with Yahuwah and Yasharel, because the Torah is intended on earth as it is in heaven. And I just realized something. I actually just realized something else, which I won't comment on, but uh, realized a lot of things just reading that. I have yet to quote from the Horror Babylon passage. How embarrassing. At, at least now you should have a widened peripheral vision in framing the picture. Revelation 14.8. And there followed another angel. Let me read that again. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon has fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of her, of the wrath of her fornication. It seems like most people read a passage such as that when it conclude Rome is the destroyed city rather than Yerushalayim. A futurist, meaning that revelation hasn't happened yet, might claim some endless incarnation of the new world order is being targeted. Uh, like basically, you know, a city that hasn't been built yet is being prophesied. Neither of these two options can be accurate unless it can be properly argued that either option were any marriage covenant with Yahuwah as Yasharel and Yehuda were. The beast most certainly is Rome. No, no denying that. Though he is never described as Babylon. Babylon is a different city than, than the government of the beast. They're two completely different locations. I know it doesn't outright say the whore here, but we're getting to that part. She most certainly, she's most certainly implied when the city of her origin is referred to in feminine terms. Of course, it says fornication, so it's like, all right. What's more, she, she is the fornicator. Imagine a woman giving herself to any number of men, all grouped around her in a circle while her husband is away on business. That's an ugly picture, but... It's the way it's described. I'm getting ahead of myself. Look at this. That is such an unattractive picture, but it is, it's what is happening here. Yasharel, as well as Yehuda, were the women of Yahuwah, which is to say they were hands off for the surrounding nations, had either been true to her husband and those nations attempted to take them by force, then Yahuwah would have dealt with the rape of his bride accordingly, accordingly. Though I think you and I both know he would have guarded his people so that nothing evil would have befallen them in the first place. Protection obviously didn't happen for Yushalayim in 70 AD. And why is that? She was a fornicator, the whore. And now for the Horror Babylon passage, which you've all been waiting around for. I suppose the best thing to do in a situation like this one is to lay the entire chapter out so that there are no accusations as to whether or not I am withholding information, because people do accuse me of that. Though, seeing as how I have already covered the Beast of Rome, some of what is being described, uh, well, actually, I didn't, uh, I probably need to change that line. Some of what is being described here, it will be uh, a student review. Um, now, you. I'll go ahead and read the whole thing. Why not? Oh, that's a long passage. Let's just read the highlighted parts. How about that? It, we see here in verse 1, Come hither, I will show unto you the judgments of the great whore that sits upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Jumping down to verse 6, we see, And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Yahusha. And then dropping down to verse 16 on page 29. And the ten horns which you saw upon the beast, these shall hate the whore. Why would the, why would the beast hate Rome? These shall hate the whore and shall make her desolate and naked 
and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. People describe like that it's, it, you know, some like European Union turning on the Pope or something like that. That's usually how it's described. Another must-read paper is my paper on the glorious appearing of Yehusha HaMashiach, which details parallels between Revelation and the War of the Jews in 70 AD. Wink, wink. The information you are currently reading regarding the Horror of Babylon is in there. Supposing you have read the report, then the beast has already been formally introduced, as well as the identity of the seven kings. Names were dropped, and I don't care to repeat them again. The parts worth covering, at least for this portion of the conversation, have been highlighted for you, the ones I just read. It seems as though the futurist, often but not always in partnership with the Zionist, I'm not taking a, a dig at anyone who believes Revelation is future tense, but I do believe it is lining up with, with Zionist thinking, uh, believe it or not, paint the picture of a new world religion which the beast hopes to create a superficial one at best, because hardly anyone skims over the part where the whore is naked and burned with fire after her adulterers have tired of her. I don't suppose there's anything in this passage alone which will convince you that the futurist perspective arrives some 20 centuries too late in the theology duty. The total, the total disconnect between Revelation and 70 AD is by design. Whether past or future, according to what I've already shown you, I think, I think the case of Yehuda being the whore is a strong one. Those who insist it is the RCC have to make the case as to how the Vatican was ever in a marriage covenant to begin with. Now, Catholics will believe that, but how Protestants come to this conclusion is beyond me. What makes They're the ones pushing this view, by the way, the Protestants. So just beyond me, I don't get it. What makes the whore's fornication particularly potent is that she is drunk with the blood of the saints. Who killed the prophets again but the Yahudim? Babylon, the city, didn't kill the prophets. No, Jerusalem did. She murdered her bridegroom, and that is no small detail. What I'm saying is that it's connecting. The, the, the city Babylon that killed the saints, uh, it's, it's Jerusalem. There's only one city that did that. It wasn't Rome. Again, the disconnect being made regards the total destruction of Jerusalem and the Jews being uprooted from the land. I'm thinking a separate divorce has been given, which would heavily imply Yahuwah is done with the land once and for all. It's over. There may be other lands which the Most High Elohim has planted for the uh, for the people of his uh, – uh, let me read that again. There may be other lands which the Most High Elohim has planted the people of his covenant in, but Israel isn't it and never will be again. And I put Israel there purposely. We're talking about 1948 Israel. You shall see why I've come to that conclusion soon enough. Before I do, would it surprise you to learn that the whore was an actual woman? I bet you never saw that coming. If Revelation were turned into a movie, you never thought they'd be capable of casting the whore for a starring role. But like the other players already discussed, she too was a living individual, certainly a woman. Not much of a lady, though. She even has a name, Berenice of Cilicia, sometimes referred to as Julia Berenice. Although much of history simply knows her as Bernice. She was a Herod, you know, specifically the daughter of Herod Agrippa. All right. So this is where I, I, I took you through all this to show you the Herod. It's been a journey, but I'm showing you Herod's connection to the Edomites. And then the, uh, the Edomites slash Herod's connection to the destruction of Yaakov. The, the crushing, attempting to crush the head, 
killed Brother Yaakov. Because why wouldn't she be related to Herod, of course? You, you will tell me the Herods were Edomites rather than Jews, and that I've therefore destroyed my own point. You've forgotten that the Herods were half-Jews. They were both Esau and Yaakov, best of both worlds. In any ways, I have also shown you that the Josephus quote, wherein the Edomites became Jews. Anyways, getting back to Berenice. She's in the provided picture, looking somewhat bored, un unamused, perhaps even annoyed at having to miss out on the latest episode of the Kardashians while her social media friends are abuzz about it. That's like the lamest joke ever. I can't believe I wrote that in two separate papers. I need to come up with better jokes. My apologies. I will try to up my game next time. Uh, don't quote me on this one. Like I mean it. Don't quote me on that about the Kardashians. But I think that's Paul giving testimony. Wait, I checked. He is Paul. The scene derives from Acts of the Apostles, and here's what it says. Uh, yeah, I'll go ahead and read the whole scene. And as he thus uh, spoke for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. He said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. For the king knows of these things, before whom also I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him. For this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, believe you the prophets? I know that you thou believes. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost you persuade me to be a Christian. And Paul said, I would to Elohim that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day were, were both almost and altogether such as I am except these bonds. And when he had thus spoken, the king rose up and the governor and Bernice, there she is, and they that sat with them. And when they were gone aside, they talked between themselves, saying, This man does nothing worthy of death or of bonds. Then said Agrippa unto Festus, This man might have been set at liberty if he had not appealed unto Caesar. And there she is, the whore of Babylon, in the Bible, identified. She also makes an appearance in Acts 25.13 as well as verse 23. I didn't quote from those passages because they're just as uneventful as the Paul trial. Here is how every encounter goes down. Berenice enters through one doorway or another, finds furniture to sit upon, and then leaves. Nothing too scandalous. Perhaps I should include them, though. Best to cover my bases because you never really know. Acts 25.13 says, uh, one chapter earlier, And after certain days, King Agrippa and Bernice came into Caesarea to salute Festus. I could sit here and tell you there's nothing more to digest in the given scenario, but it is quite possible that you see something which I don't. It's why I'm taking the time to go through this, because discovering the villains in a community effort, or because discovering the villains is a community effort, excuse me. As a writer, I have often found that bumbling my way through the den of iniquity is the best way to have the bad guys unmask themselves, and it works. It works seven out of ten times. Let's see if the next one is one of those instances. Acts 25, 23. By the way, that really works on social media, too. Just act really stupid, and they fall into their own trap. And on the morrow, when Agrippa was come, and Berenice with great pomp, and was entered into the place of hearing with the chief captains and principal men of the city, as Festus's commandment, Paul was brought forth. So there she is again. I'm not reading anything incriminating here either. Hmm. 
Berenice might very well have been a perfectly good little spoiled princess with all that pomp required for her entry into her room, according to these passages. You might be wondering why I'm thinking to target her in these three separate passages, then. It probably has something to do with her affair with Titus. Again, I know this is a review for some of you guys. This is going to be totally new information for a lot of people reading this or listening to this. Forget about Titus already. I said I wasn't going to hold your hand while crossing the street through the 17th, 17th chapter of Revelation because we'd already gone over the different Caesars in my other paper. He was one of them. Speaking of which, look at what we read about Berenice and Wiki. Um, that's even hell. I have like a, um, a wide screen in front of me, like a, you know, huge panorama, and that's still small to me. So... Let's see what I write in the commentary. Uh, Berenice liked to rock the cradle, apparently. I don't think Wiki says that. I think that was just my addition. Because Titus was 11 years her junior when she fell in love with them. She furthermore backed the Flavians during the year of four emperors in 69. It's quite the year, 69. A mighty big risk. Recall your history, how the Herods backed the wrong man during the civil war that rocked the Roman world in the years following Julius Caesar's murder. Herod the Great went with Mark Antony rather than Octavian, resulting in a lot of groveling and butt-kissing after Cleopatra pulled off that ridiculous, ridiculous serpent stunt. I still think it's a hoax, but whatever, the death of Cleopatra, I think it's a hoax. The lovebird routine paid off with Berenice. The Flavians rise and the empire required all the numbers in her pocketbook, but love conquers all, I guess. With Vespasian, with Vespasian declared emperor, it is Beatrice and a lover boy who stayed behind to honeymoon in Yehuda and squash the rebellion. The aftermath of her love affair was one which ensured that Herod Agrippa II would be the last of the Herods. Bummer. But who really cares about the brother when Titus owns a letterman jacket? If she wears her dress just right, it might be hung over her shoulders. Might as well throw the Jews under the bus while she's at it. Their little tirade ended with the temple destroyed of its very foundation, Jerusalem up in smoke, and apparently one million dead. Though I have seen the six million number played around with that too, interestingly enough. You've heard stories about girls with daddy issues running off on the back of a motorcycle with a dreamboat boyfriend filled with false promises, but this is straight up ridiculous. Daughter Dearest aided in the total destruction of her granddaddy's kingdom. Think about that. That's not – people don't talk about that. And she spent her entire fortune doing it. And you thought Paris Hilton <laughs> needed a spanking. And then we see here – this is uh, from Wikipedia regarding her time in Rome. Uh, after the destruction of 70 AD. The idea that the whore saddled up to the beast in Revelation is obvious sexual imagery, and it appears as though Berenice was straddling the beast, quite literally, when in Rome. The opposition some of you might have relies upon the fact that the whore was burned, whereas the fate of Berenice is not known. Isn't that only slightly suspicious, though? I thought the Romans kept adequate records. I mean, consider everything else we know about her. It took five years for Berenice and Titus to reconvene in Rome after their romp through the Yehudan countryside, which included arsonry. Certain senators hated her, though Cassius Dio writes that Berenice was at the height of her power there, living in the royal palace and acting very much as one would expect of the emperor's wife. Despite selling her country and her countrymen and even her own nefesh, her soul, for an appointment in the queen's chair, 
Titus turned her out in an instance. All it took was a public announcement by the theater people, OG, and she was tossed out of the palace. Those film critics, <laughs> they don't like their actors. She's gone. I got to get a new one. Did she return to her redneck brother in the desert pond she so despised? We are not told. She simply showed up in his story playing a whore of such biblical proportions that Yerushalayim was destroyed and then slipped away because of the criticism of stage actors. She actually reminds me of Johnny Depp's girlfriend. I'll, what was her name? They, we just went through that whole fake trial, uh, total fake trial. I wouldn't be in the least – I think she's like leaving Hollywood even now at this point because like everyone despises her. I wouldn't be in the least bit surprised if her demise was scrubbed, being equally as biblical, and the controllers can't have that. I leave you with one final passage. Then did I consider these things? And the, let's see, where does this come from? Oh, second Ezra. See, I'll read the whole thing. That's good. Then did I consider these things, and they all were made through me alone and through none other. By me also they shall be ended, and by none other. Then answered I and said, what shall be the parting asunder of the times? Or when shall be the first end of the first and the beginning of it that follows? And he said unto me, from Abraham unto Yitzhak, when Yaakov and Esau were born of him, Yaakov's hand held first the heel of Esau. For Esau is the end of the world. And Yaakov, the beginning of it that follows. Well, that's interesting. The hand of man is betwixt the heel and the hand. Other question, Ezra, ask you not. I suppose the passage can be read in a number of ways. Esau being the end of the world could be referring to the crucifixion of Mashiach and the events surrounding 70 AD, which I suspect it is, all of which involve the Herods. Yaakov being the beginning would then refer to the kingdom of heaven upon the earth. Hmm. Then again, I am highly suspicious that the modern-day Israel situation is one big Edomite party going on, meaning we're seeing repeated events. Let's conclude this portion, shall we? The Herods played a mighty big role in the Kingdom of Heaven narrative, always playing the role of the antagonist. It goes all the way back to Yaakov and Esau's struggles, though really I have already traced it to a much earlier century to Cain and Habel, but even before that to the serpent and Chua, that would be Eve. I've already stated it, though, uh, I'll, though I'll say it again. Herod's part in the crucifixion of Mashiach cracks everything wide open. It was Esau finally going through with the killing of Yaakov so that he might nab the inheritance he had once forsaken. Do you, See, this is what I'm talking No one talks about this with the Passion account. Do you recall how the false witnesses kept claiming Yahushua would destroy the temple, Herod's temple? Isn't that interesting? They were projecting. Everything they said he would do, they did themselves, right? They're claiming, these Edomites, are, and they're claiming he said he's going to destroy the temple. No, they destroyed the temple. See how that works? And by the way, the, the Edomites had already destroyed the temple. So, you know, talk about calling the uh, the cattle black. But then in as little as four decades, the Herods would commit the deed all over again. All right. Bazaar Kifa 3. And I'm looking at the time. I thought we would get to verse 5 tonight and how wrong I was about that. But let's see how far we can go. I think we're just going to get through verse 3.
And I feel like all that setup was really important, especially going into verse three here. All right. So let's see how far we can get. But Yosef, the oh, actually, no, I want to get through verse four. Okay, so we'll see if we can get through verse four. But Yosef, the friend of Pilate and of Adonai, had been standing there, and knowing they were about to crucify him, he came before Pilate and requested the body of Adonai for burial. That's Bezora Kepha, verse three. See, we're making progress. They were friends, Yosef of Ramah, Arimathea, and Pilate. Yosef's story is told to us in all four canonical gospels, namely Mat Matthew Yahoo 27, 57 through 60, Marcus 15, 42 through 46, Lucas 23, 50 through 53, and, and Yochanan 19, 38 through 42. And their friendship is never once mentioned in any of the canonical gospels. Are you really surprised, though? I have more to say on that. But first, you should know that it's not the only reference to their friendship. I do have a second witness, and I'm prepared to use it. So this comes from a rather new friend of mine. I wish I'd call it an old friend. It's a new friend. The book of the the books of the Nazarene, uh, chapter 21. Now, one of the elders of the Supreme Council was a name a man named Josias called Joseph of Arimathea. That would be. Uh, the, the Hebrew city would be Ramah, son of Joachim, son of Nathan, son of Eliezer, son of Eliyahu, son of Yakim, son of Zadok, or Zadok, who lived on the Merchant's Road a day's journey from Yerushalayim. He also owned an estate northwest of the city. He had a brother-in-law named Nicodemus, which is interesting. That's the only place I've ever read that he was a brother-in-law, to my knowledge. Maybe there's other references. And both were secret followers of Yahusha. Yosef of Ramah, the wise commander, had been present at the council when it sat in judgment on Yahusha, and he supported him. That many more who could have done so were absent because of the hour. Uh, they're talking about because the followers of Messiah were on the wrong Passover uh, date. They like kept it. Yahusha's own followers kept a different date than he did. Right? Ouch! Sounds like kind of like what we do today. We should all have uh, give ourselves a little bit more mercy over that. When evening drew near and Yahusha had been four hours on the cross, Yosef of Ramah, being a man of status and authority, went to Pontius Pilate without fear, for they were friends. There it is. He requested the body of Yahusha, his kinsman, saying, It is written in our law that the sun shall not be permitted to set on the body of a murdered man. That comes from the books of the Nazarene, chapter 21. Of course, Yosef and Pilate were friends. Come on, he was he was rich and affluential, so of course they were. It doesn't outright say so here, but I have already mentioned in my Miriam of Megal Wife Messiah paper. Uh oh, yeah, there's that again. Uh, how he was a ten trader from England. His connections potentially range all the way to the Americas, uh, and South America, North America. I do believe that they were being traded with back then, and when it go unnoticed by a Roman governor. How else do you figure he managed to land in the lap of the Sanhedrin? And anyways, the giveaway here is his living in two separate locations, one on the Merchant's Road, a day's journey from Yushalim, and then in another estate northwest of the city. Kind of paints the picture, don't you think? The garden tomb, which, which Yosef had originally intended to bury himself in, also happens to be located northwest of the city, precisely as described in this book. Do you know what else was northwest of the city? Rama was though most people know it as Arimathea. Rama is located some eight kilometers or five miles northwest of Yerushalayim. I'm guessing that would be the aforementioned Merchant's Road, 
which is furthermore said to be a day's journey from Yerushalayim, which makes sense, five miles, day's journey, quite the commute back then. It also explains why an additional apartment in Yerushalayim would be desired to avoid rush hour traffic. That guy's not traveling home every night. He might like travel home for the weekends, for Sabbath, something like that. He probably was doing business in an in an a neighboring apartment to the garden tomb. The truly jarring part of Kifa's narrative is in the timing of his request. In every other given reference, Yosef asked for the body of Mashiach only after his crucifixion, not before. Here, his request is made known the moment Herod barks his orders. So Pilate washes his hands. Herod barks his orders. Let's crucify him. Uh, Yosef of, of Rama goes straight to Pilate and be like, we got to get his body because they're going to do something really bad to it. Contradictions. Rome is playing tricks on your mind. Best to get out now while you still can. LOL. Most Bible readers don't like notable, uh, notable discrepancies such as this one. I don't believe it is one, but for the moment, let's just run with it and say it is. Let's say this is a discrepancy with the other Gospels. For me, a conflict of details gives the story more credibility. The likelihood that Kifa actually wrote this has just been increased in my book. Yes, it has. These were dudes rehearsing a trauma traumatic situation years after the fact and are therefore allowed a mistake or two. They're men. They're dudes. Men's with pens. I know that's not what many of you want to hear because you have been told that the Ruach HaKadosh supernaturally breathed every word of the gospel out. Why use four different witnesses then if the Ruach is the only storyteller? And, and they don't you know, all agree. That's just kind of facts. Had I looked to forge a book of the Bible, as many are claiming with Kephas Besora, you could be sure I'd collect notes and pay attention to the fine details. You understand what I'm saying? Stuff like Yosef of Arimathea and the timing of his request would most certainly be one of them. I would note when he went to Pilate and asked for the body. Oh, he asked for it after he died. I better pin that in there and not put it before. You see, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm making a fake account. And so again, supposing this isn't Kifa attempting to recall events years or even decades after the fact, it seems to me that the imposter writer went out of his way to contradict the four other Gospels. Why would he do that? Though, as I was saying, Yosef requested the body of Mashiach before his crucifixion, and I don't see that as a contradiction. My old college buddy, Oakham's Razor, had a saying which I'd like to quote from in trying, uh, in trying moments such as these. He often told me the simplest explanation is, as you know the, the answer, the simplest explanation is usually the best one. That is sound advice, which I have never forgotten. Might I suggest that Yosef requested the body of Mashiach from Pilate twice? Hmm. Well, that, that, that could be a possibility. Had he had been present at his midnight trial, we know that, and already knew the plans of the Jews. As a secret follower, he also had been whispered to and knew what they were cooking up in the back room. They were looking to mutilate his body, despite what Herod said. And so seeing as how he had failed to win over his contemporaries and preserving the life of Mashiach, his only thought was to use his political savvy in securing the body. I'm thinking he knew of additional plans, and we are watching his diplomacy in action. 
Psalm 16.10 promises that Mashiach's body would not see decay. And this is one of the really important reasons uh, as to why his physical resurrection is so important. This is something that Kepha quotes from in Acts that he quotes from Psalm 16.10 when giving one of his speeches. Who knows what the temple controllers had planned for Mashiach after he was dead? Very likely, Yosef had a hand in ensuring that, prophe that prophecy was fully realized. And he used Rome to do it, his connections. Anywho, Yosef's first request as seen here would have been to ensure the body. His second, which the other gospel writers talk about, would be to collect it. Like, hey, I want to ensure his body. Okay, I'm coming back to you. Can I get his body? And Pilate's like, sure, you can have his body. Both times after the deed was done. The argument is that Pilate would never pay attention to this part. And this is, I'm not going to get to it tonight. Uh, for those of you who have questions as to why this apparently completely contradicts the Gospels and who killed, who crucified Mashiach. All right, we'll get to that. Pay attention to this argument, though. The argument is that Pilate would never release the body of a crucified man over to a citizen, even if they were friends. And they're right. He wouldn't and couldn't. Pilate was not above the law. This well-known fact has been long debated, employed as fuel for accusation against the reliability of the resurrection story, even uh, when, in fact, the Romans did not allow crucified victims to be buried in an honorable way. There's historical you know, precedence for this. They left them on their crucifixion devices for several days so that their bodies might bloat in the heat of the sun, uh, be torn apart by birds, I'm sure, eventually exploding before being tossed into a pit. Roman guards would have overseen an operation such as what I've just described rather than the tomb. Supposing Pilate is responsible and he did release a crucified body, then this would be the exception to the rule. Uh, maybe it was the exception to the rule. I'm just saying I don't think it is. We obviously don't have to worry about that, though, because Mashiach wasn't crucified by Rome. You understand what I'm saying? Pilate was demanding a corpse from a legalized mob so as to honor him in his death, speaking once more of his innocence. All right, it looks like we will get to Bizarre Kifa 4. And this will be, I think, a good one to, uh, to sum it up tonight, to finish it. Verse 4, And Pilate sent to Herod and asked for his body. And Herod said, Brother Pilate, even if no one has asked for him, we purpose to bury him. Oh, sure you did. Especially as the Sabbath draws near, for it is written in the Torah. You see how Herod is quoting from the Torah here? That the sun should not set upon one that has been put to death. Which is true, and actually that is in the Torah. Give me any other gospel account, and the only person seemingly interested in bearing Mashiach by the book is Yosef of Ramah of Arimathea. Not overlooking other members of Yahushua's family, like the three Maryams. Yes, I just threw that in there. The three Maryams there at the cross were his family. When it was the Romans doing the, the crucifying, one might argue that the Jews were under no obligation to bury him because it was out of their hands. Do you understand? If the Romans crucified them, the, the, the Jews didn't have to bury them. That, that wasn't their deal. That, that was some other government, evil government, the beast doing that. They weren't responsible. They had no authority over a crucified body, and they didn't. 
Not so this time around. Now it was the Jews and the Edomites doing the killing at the hands of the Herods. How the tables have turned. Clearly, Herod recognized the political maneuver at play. Pilate ordering the body of the slain victim brilliantly undermined their entire operation. It is a well-known fact that Herod had no shortage of spies. They were literally the people coaxing you with candy on the streets. Little boy, tell me, tell me what your thoughts are on, on you know, the Herods, hoping to win your secrets into their confidences. You figure his response, uh, you figure by his response that he wanted to know who the mole was working against him. A double agent, is it? Herod's trying to figure this out because remember Yosef Arimathea, he's a secret follower. They don't know, they don't know what's going on here. They don't know why Pilate is so interested in his body. Uh, certainly not somebody sitting in the top of the uh, Sanhedrin. Hadn't those seats been bought and paid for already? Apparently not all of them. Remember, Yosef was still a secret follower of Mashiach by this point. You might even say in modern, I'll, I'll say this, in modern QAnon terms, they were the white hats. That's That goes out to you, John Q. He, he just hadn't outed himself yet. Within days, hours actually, he too was thrown into a prison cell. I suppose his allegiances became obvious when Yahusha's body magically ended up in a tomb intended for Yosef. That was kind of the giveaway there. And look at who outs themselves when that happens. Uh, this is coming from, oh, Bezora Nicodemus, Gospel of Nicodemus. I love this. You guys know I love this book. When the unjust Yahudim heard, you notice the context there between Pilate says the Yahusha is just, and here we have the unjust Yahudim. When the Yahudim, uh, the unjust Yahudim heard that Yosef had begged and buried the body of Yahusha, they sought after Nicodemus. And those 15 men who had testified before the governor of Yahusha was not born through fornication. Uh, so there were a few people there sticking up saying that, no, this is actually a virgin birth, that he was, he was, not, he was not the child of rape or some other means. And other good persons who had shown any uh, good, it should say good action towards them, not God action. The Yahudim at the hearing of this were disquieted and troubled, so they seized Yosef and commanded him to be put in custody before the Sabbath and kept there till the Sabbath was over. And they said to him, Make confession, for at this time it is not lawful to do you any harm till the first day of the week come. But we know that you will not be thought worthy of a burial. That's kind of telling right there. That tells you what they, they didn't want to bury Mashiach. They're so pissed that he buried Mashiach. He's like, you're not getting a burial. But we will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. Sounds familiar, huh? Yosef answered, that speech is like the speech of proud Goliath. A great old uh, Rephaim there. Who reproached the living Elohim in speaking against David. But you scribes and doctors know that Elohim said by the prophet, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay to you evil equal to that which you have threatened to me. Adonai, whom you have hanged upon the cross, is able to deliver me out of your hands. All your wickedness will return upon you. So the Jews sought immediate vengeance upon anyone who stood up against their false accusations. But then furthermore, they had no intention of burying Yosef, telling us, that the same sentiments 
was reserved for the son of Elohim. That's the giveaway right there. Herod was lying. After brutalizing Yahusha even beyond the standard Roman crucifixion of the day, which we'll get to next, uh, next week, I think, all indications direct our attention to a continued trend. They would have mutilated his body even afterwards, after his death. They weren't done yet. It's why Yosef making such an effort to acquire the body is so important in nearly every passion recollection. He knew what they were up to, and just as importantly, who was speaking through them. Uh, the same th That same spokesman, spokesman for the Nephilim giant, obviously. I, I should say Rephaim. Uh, he was a Rephaim. Close enough, I guess. Herod's and <laughs> the, the Neph people are going to say not close enough. You got it wrong. Herod's insisting that they would bury the body, even going so far as to invoke Deuteronomy 21-23, tells us that Pilate didn't believe they would as per his sources. Like he's, he's, he, like he's speaking what he knows they're not going to do. The puppet king was either lying or ill-informed. He had surrounded himself with foolish counsel and collectively, and of course he was a bit of a nincompoop himself, as you know, and collectively they were bringing him as well as themselves and the whole Herodian dynasty to swift ruin. You might be wondering why Herod would want Mashiach crucified if Pilate had already handed Yahushua over to his jurisdiction a little earlier on in the story, only to have him sent right back. It's a good question. I've been asked this question since publishing this. Or while I was writing it, people were, this is one of the questions I got. I have the answer for it. Before I give it, though, here is the passage in question. So this comes from Lucas chapter 23. When Pilate heard of Galilee, Galil, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged into Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was at Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Yahushua, he was exceeding glad, for he was desirous to see him of a long season, because he had heard many things of him, and he hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. And then he questioned, it sounds kind of like, yeah, like this, uh, I don't know, I, if you guys ever saw Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, it almost seemed to, I, I feel like it kind of portrayed him pretty well, like he was kind of like a man-child, you know? Then he questioned with him in many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. And Herod, with his men of war, sat him at naught and mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him again to Pilate. And the same day, Pilate and Herod were made friends together, for before they were at enmity between themselves. That's another piece of opposition I've received in this. We know now why the Herod mentioned as Antipas rather than his half-brother, Archelaus. Technically, Archelaus, and we'll call him Archelaus, that's his name, was in command over Yerushalayim, okay? not the Herod who had him crucified. Assuming he was present for Passover as Antipas was, and it seems likely, Yehusha could have been handed over to him, Archelaus, because really Antipas had no direct authority there. His jurisdiction, his jurisdiction was over the backwater hills of Galilee, of Galo, not Jerusalem. Pilate was clearly forcing the hand of a political opponent. You're seeing like, a, like a, a chess game happening here. Though Herod was a weak king, but a shadow of his father, and Pilate knew it. I don't think anyone really respected this guy. It appears uh, Herod the Great, however, people respected. It appears as though Herod was not quite ready to place all his cards on the table yet. He was not yet willing to commit what remained of his fractured kingdom to suicide. 
he wanted the Romans to share his guilt. And the Jews did too. Everyone was trying to place it on, on Rome, which didn't go so well when Pilate washed his hands. Everyone was pressing Pilate to commit the deed, and Pilate knew it. Pilate receives all sort of criticism for being a weak governor in the Gospels, when in reality he is the only one keeping his composure in all of this. He's the one, like, politically, like, moving things to his advantage. Contrarily, and you actually really see that in the Gospel of uh, Nicodemus, which I hope to quote more, from more. I mean, he, he, like, he plays the Jews at their own game. Contrarily, you can see how easily the Tetrarch cracked under pressure in the Lucas account. Within a few short verses, we see Herod pass from exceeding gladness to sheer mockery. I mean, it's a quick transition. You can't wait to see him. Like, and then he's just like mocking him with his uh, the people probably pulling his strings, all due to the accusations of the temple controllers. Those are those are the people behind all this. Choose your friends wisely is a lesson to be learned in this morality tale. Who was really running the show, I wonder? And people who say it was it was Herod, I, I disagree with. I don't think he was calling the show. Speaking of which, a common protest to the pilot as innocent claim involves the friendship that ensued between the two. It says in Lucas 23, 12, that they became friends on that very day, being formally at enmity between themselves. So you can see why he's at enmity with them and he's trying to pass it off to his enemy. The claim is that they found common ground in being co-conspirators, but I disagree. I am convinced that Pilate became one of the first post-resurrection converts. Uh, maybe I'll deal with that later. Eventually, he committed suicide in Switzerland, though I suspect he may have been suicided. Perhaps I will get to that as well. As I already mentioned, Herod was a weak king, easily influenced by the temple controllers. Many theologians paint the flamboyant boy uh, king and the strokes of a will-oiled badass. Perhaps they are confusing him with his father, the great. If I had to guess, the accord between them derived from a common uh, experience. The crucifixion of Yehusha HaMashiach forever changed their short-lived lives. And assuming they are legitimate, I highly doubt they are, uh, the, the letters I'm referring to, I'm about to quote, the letters passed between the two testifies to that fact. And so I present to you Herod's purported letter to Pilate for your consideration. I'm kind of changing my opinion on that. Um, I was more skeptical before I got into the letters than afterwards. So this is the letter of Herod to Pilate, the governor, Herod to Pontius Pilate, the governor of Yerushalayim, Shalom. I am in great anxiety. I write these things unto thee, that when thou hast heard them, thou mayest be grieved for me. For as my daughter, Herodias, who is dear to me, was playing upon a pool of water which had ice upon it, it broke under her, and all her body went down, and her head was cut off and remained on the surface of the ice. What a way to <laughs> begin a letter. Yeah, is it good times for you too? And behold, her mother is holding her head upon her knees in her lap, and my whole house is in great sorrow. For when, for I, when I heard of the man Yahusha, wished to come to thee that I might see him alone and hear his word, whether it was like that of the sons of men. And it is certain that because of the many evil things which were done by me to Yochanan the Baptist, and because I mocked Mashiach, behold, I received the reward of righteousness. 
for I have shed much blood of others' children upon the earth. Therefore the judgments of Elohim are righteous, for every man receives according to his thoughts. But since thou was worthy to see that righteous man, therefore it becometh you to pray for me. My son Asbonius also is in the agony of the hour of death, and I too am in affliction and great trial because I have the dropsy. And am in great distress because I persecuted the introducer of baptism by water, which was Yochanan. Therefore, my brother, the judgments of Elohim are righteous. And my wife, again, though all her grief for her daughter, or through all her grief for her daughter, is become blind in her left eye because we desire to blind the eye of righteousness. There is no shalom to the doers of evil, saith Yahuwah. For already great affliction cometh upon the priests and upon the writers of the law, because they delivered unto thee the just one. For this is the consummation of the world, that they consented that the goyim should become heirs. For the children of light shall be cast out, for they have not observed the things which were preached concerning Yahuwah and concerning his son. Therefore, gird up thy loins and receive righteousness. Thou with thy wife, remembering Yahusha night and day, and the kingdom shall belong to you, to you, Goyim, for we, the chosen people, have mocked the righteous one. Now, if there is place for our request, O Pilate, because, notice he's calling himself a Yahudim there. Now, if there is place for our request, O Pilate, because we were at one time in power, bury my household carefully, for it is right that we should be buried by thee rather than by the priest. Whom after a little time, as the scriptures say, at the coming of Yahushua Messiah, vengeance shall overtake. Of course, I think he's referring to 70 AD there. It seems pretty, you know, pretty clear in the letter. That generation. I, I should add that to my 70 AD paper. Fare thee well with Procla thy wife. That would be uh, Pilate's wife. I send thee the earrings of my daughter and my own ring, that they may be unto thee a memorial of my uh, decease. For already do worms begin to issue from my body, and lo, I am receiving temporal judgment. And I am afraid of the judgment to come, for in both we stand before the works of the living Elohim. But this judgment, which is temporal, is for a time. Well, that to come is judgment forever. That is the end of the letter to Pilate the governor from Herod. What Herod and Pilate hold in common is that Yahushua was the righteous one of Yasharel, and that the kingdom of Elohim had been handed over to him away from them. Quite the confession, wouldn't you agree? I do have my concerns regarding its legitimacy. For starters, Yokonen being the quote-unquote introducer of baptism by water is somewhat suspicious, especially since ritual immersion predates the baptizer by a thousand years easily. Herod may have been a bit of a nincompoop in the theology department, but the, the mikvah is to be found in probably every Yehudin neighborhood and backyard and front yard and street corner would be difficult to miss. Uh, a mikvah, in case you don't know, is a baptismal or a place where they would richly cleanse themselves. Or perhaps we are simply dealing with another scribe doctoring up a rather bland document, which I think is probably the case. Let's not get distracted, though. Nowhere are we given any indication that Herod repented. He simply recognized the judgment to come, two of them actually, a temporal judgment as well as an eternal one, and in both instances, his works were lacking. Like he's, he's like, he's like I'm, not, I'm not making it. Like he doesn't do anything to change it. He's just like, yeah, I'm not making it. 
He even cast his lot in with the Jews, whose time as kingdom citizens was admittedly coming to an end. That, of course, happened in 70 AD. Supposing this letter has anything to say about the relationship, a common bond was forged on the basis that Yahushua was the righteous one of Yasharel. Okay, so they became friends in that sense. That is what I'm advocating. Can't say their friendship was a hatred against the Christians then. And that's what people say. They say that their friendship, their bond was a conspiracy, you know, conspiracy against Messiah. Well, I guess I should present Pilate's purported response then, seeing as how we've already gone through with Herod's letter to Pilate. So this is what the letter of Pilate to Herod. Pilate to Herod, the Tetrarch. Shalom. Oh, look, he says Tetrarch there. That's a Pilate would never make the mistake of uh, calling him a king. And that, for me, that shows a bit of its credibility. I think a lot of probably medieval forgers would call him a king. But what do I know? Know and see that in the day when thou didst deliver Yahushua unto me, I took pity on myself and testified by washing my hands that I was innocent, concerning him who rose from the grave after three days and had performed thy pleasure in him. For thou didst desire me to be associated with thee in his crucifixion. So let me read that again, just, just so nobody misses this, all right? Just so, this isn't just a Gospel of Peter thing, all right? This goes to other books. For thou, Herod, didst desire me, Pilate, to be associated with you, Herod, in his Mashiach's crucifixion. But I now learn from the executioners and from the soldiers who watched his sepulcher that he rose from the dead. And I have especially confirmed what was told me that he appeared bodily in Galileo, or Galilee to the same form and with the same voice and with the same doctrine. That's kind of interesting. Same doctrine, like it, it, the, the Torah, right? Like it's not a different doctrine now. And with the same disciples, the same Talmudim, not having changed in anything because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? But preaching with boldness his resurrection and an everlasting kingdom. And behold, heaven and earth rejoice. And behold, proclaim my wife is believing in the visions which appeared unto her when you said that I should deliver Yahushua to the people of Yashorel because of the ill will they had. Now, when proclaim my wife, or I could say my woman, uh, heard that Yahushua was risen and had appeared in Galilee, she took with her Longinus, uh, the centurion and 12 soldiers, the same that had watched at the sepulchre. It, by the way, the, the Gospel of Akifa confirms that Pilate did send his Roman guards to the tomb uh, to make sure that the, the Jews didn't steal the body. And went to greet the face of Mashiach as if to a great spectacle and saw him with his Talmudim. Now, while they were standing and wondering and gazing at him, he looked at them and said to them, What is it? Do ye believe in me? Prakla, know that in the covenant which Elohim gave to the fathers— it is said that everybody which had perished should live by means of my death, which ye have seen. And now ye see that I live, whom ye crucified. Now that's interesting there. We'll comment on that. And I suffered many things till that I was laid in the sepulcher. But now hear me and believe in my father, Elohim, who is in me. For I loose the cords of death and break the gates of Sheol, and my coming shall be hereafter. And when Procla, my wife, and the Romans heard these things, they came and told me, weeping, for they also were against him when they uh, devised the evils which had been done, uh, which they had done unto him. So that I also was on the couch of my bed in affliction. 
and put on a garment of mourning and took unto me 50 Romans with my wife and went to Galilee. And when I was going in the way I testified these things, that Herod did these things by me, that he took counsel with me and constrained me to arm my hands against him and to judge him that judgeth all and to scourge the just one Adonai of the just. And when he drew nigh to him, O Herod, a great voice was heard from heaven and dreadful thunder and the earth trembled and gave forth the sweet smell like unto which was never perceived even in the temple of Jerusalem. Now, while I stood in the way, our Adonai saw me as he stood and talked with his disciples. But I prayed in my heart, for I knew that it was he whom he delivered unto me, that he was Adonai of created things and creator of all. But, but we, when we saw him, all of us fell upon our faces before his feet. And I said with a loud voice, I have sinned, O Adonai, in that I sat and judged thee, who avenges all in truth. And lo, I know that thou art Elohim the son of Elohim, and I behold thy humanity and not thy divinity. But Herod, with the children of Yashorel, constrained me to do evil unto thee. Have pity, therefore, upon me, O Elohim of Yashorel. And my wife, in great anguish, said, Elohim of heaven and of earth, Elohim of Yashorel, reward me not according to the deeds of Pontius Pilate, nor according to the will of the children of Yashorel, nor according to the thought of the sons of the priest, but remember my husband in thy glory. Now our Adonai drew near and raised up me and my wife and the Romans, and I looked at him and saw there were on him the scars of the, his cross, and he said, that which all the righteous fathers hoped to receive and saw not in thy time, the Adonai of time, the Son of Man, the Son of the Most High, who is forever arose from the dead and is glorified on high by all that he created and established forever and ever. End of the letter of Pilate to Herod. There are some added paragraphs to Pilate's letter uh, after this, though the key word is added. I will let you look those up for yourselves. And when you do, it will be made abundantly clear that somebody else earmarked their own personal scholarly notes into the conversation. That raises all sorts of questions as to the legitimacy of what is shown, but I am okay living with the tension if you are. On that, on that note, did you notice how Pilate referred to Herod as a tetrarch? The Jews as well as the Hebrew writers may have thought of him as a king, but Pilate would never make the same mistake. Mm -hmm. Evidence as to its potential authenticity, at least in my book, though I think it was doctored. Something else that immediately struck my attention is in Pilate throwing the conspiracy right back upon Herod when claiming, for thou didst desire me to be associated with thee in his crucifixion. That tells us everything we need to know as to why the Tetrarch sent Mashiach back to the Roman governor on the first go-around. It was an arm wrestling competition. I'm, uh, I'm not reading anything that outright states Pilate crucified Yahushua, though. Scourged him, yes. Judged him, yes. Every bizarre that I can find agrees upon those two facts. Scourging is not the same as crucifying. Yahushua, then that, just so you guys all are clear, it, he did, I, I do believe that, be, be, you know, before he, after, I'm sorry, before he washed his hands, he did scourge him. That was to appease everybody. Say, look, look, I gave him a beating. Let's release him now. They're like, no, crucify him. Yahushua hadn't even been sentenced to death yet when that happened. What seems clear in all of this is that Pilate initially had Mashiach punished, hoping to appease the conspirators. Clearly, they were not appeased. 
His stated sin is that he went too far, allowing the son of Elohim to be brutally beaten at the hands of his, of his soldiers, but even more so that he sat in judgment over him when it should have been the other way around. I think what Pilate is criticizing there is the fact that he even stood in judgment over him. Like, like he said, I judged him as a man. I should have been like, I should have put him in the, in the chair and said, okay, you judge me. That's what he's coming to terms with there. The only direct suggestion pinning Mashiach's crucifixion, crucifixion to Pilate is in the quote from the risen Yahusha to Procla, wherein he stated, and now ye see that I live whom ye crucified. Well, that's strange. Did I read that right? Procla crucified Mashiach? News to me. I cannot find a single gospel, Bazora, which has Pilate's wife on Golgotha calling the shots. Contrarily, here is what we read of her in Matthew Yahoo's Bezorah. While Pilate was still seated on the bench, his bema seat, his wife sent him a message, have nothing to do with that righteous man. I suffered much in a dream today because of him. And interesting right there, now we have two references to um, Pilate and his wife calling Yahushua righteous. They never call anybody else righteous. Exactly. That's the Claudia Procula whom I've come to know and love. Warning Pilate to have nothing to do with them sounds like an intimate conversation between a husband and wife. It's an odd, it's an odd insertion if you think about it. Like, why is that even in the Gospels? And not the sort of detail which Matthew Yahoo would know about, unless Procula became a convert, that is. Maybe even a prominent member of the Church of Rome, as so many suspect. That's what I suspect. Why is she being fingered for crucifying him, though? Is it because she falls under the authority of her husband and he is deemed responsible? That is my best guess, especially since she later prays, reward, reward me not according to the deeds of Pontius Pilate. So he did crucify Mashiach then, maybe. Or maybe he is responsible for the crucifixion in so much as he judged him innocent, but then handed him over to the Jews so that they might have their own way with him. Hence part of the conspiracy. That is still a guilt, even if the Romans weren't the ones to drive the nails in. So in a sense, you know, Pilate is recognizing, yeah, I, I screwed up. Like, I, 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 I take responsibility for this. I should have been the one to protect you. I didn't do that. There is one more observation worth noting before venturing forward. We have already seen how Yosef of Ramah requested the body of Mashiach and Kepha III. We then read in verse 4 regarding Herod's response. Herod insisted that the Torah would be kept and that Mashiach's body would have been buried despite conflicting evidence. Herod's own confession via the corresponding letters claims he was lacking in the morality department. The Torah was not his cup of tea. Regardless, Pilate and Herod became friends. Nowhere in all of this does Pilate call Herod righteous. He calls Yahushua just, which is essentially the same thing. But then look at the one other character whom Pilate suspends as an upright person. Uh, this comes from the book, books of the Nazarene once again. When evening drew near and Yahushua had been four hours on the cross, Yosef of Ramah, being a man of status and authority, went to Pontius Pilate without fear, for they were friends. I know I quoted from this earlier tonight. He requested the body of Yahushua. And then the governor said, you are an upright man. I will not deny you uh, this to you. There's your second confirmation that Yosef of Rama and Pilate were friends. Yosef was an upright man, according to Pilate. That's essentially the same thing as calling him righteous. I know I talked about this earlier, but repeating again. Pause. I'm counting 11 individuals who are listed as righteous in the New Testament. 
Two of those names involve Yahusha and her father in heaven, leaving only nine mortal men or women to contend with. And though Yosef of Ramah has already been included in that list in Lucas 23.50, it is Pilate of all people who affirms that attribute here in the book of the Nazarene. Interesting. That tells us that Pilate was putting the pieces together. He had already judged Mashiach innocent of all accusations from the temple controllers. But now he stood alone in that decision with nobody to back him except for Yosef. The only two people who are deemed as righteous in this story is Yahusha and Yosef. All right, I'm going to end there, page uh, 51. I think that's a good place. And uh, hopefully you guys were writing down questions, posting them, writing comments. I am going to call Sarah, if you're still with me, Sarah E. I'm going to call her in to uh, give me a lay of the land and let me know what was going on. There she is right there. So how did I do, Sarah? Still loading. I think what you did was is like you actually went out and came back in and then okay. it worked just fine. I'll the great thing back. Okay. The great thing about this is that we're not on YouTube live and so I keep looking up because I have this huge screen, so I'm not like looking right at the camera. The great thing about this is that we're not on YouTube live, so I can edit this out, or maybe I won't. Maybe I'll just keep this in because this is awesome. All right. Well, there, there she is. Oh, this is uh, Sarah E, and she's been writing down uh, the talk, uh, the the from the village. So, what was going on? Give me the download. There was uh, several questions, but there was also some really, really interesting comments as well. The first uh, question, John Q. Adams said. Why do you think they are so hell bent on hiding who really crucified Yahusha? Well, I think that the 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 statement that has I'd have to look at how many gospels it ends up in, but they very clearly state, "Let the blood be on us and our children." And um, you know, I, I I need to I would be curious to do more of a to look into when I think this happened. When did the transition happen? Because in the following weeks, I will I'm going to get to this, and you guys just. Most of you know where I've already gone with this. You've been in the group. We've gone through the documents. You've seen the Hebrew Gospels. And the Hebrew Gospels, uh, here's a preview for next week. The Hebrew Gospels all say that it was the, the Pharisees who did it, right? It wasn't the Roman soldiers. Um, and I don't think those documents were intended to be found. I think it happened. I do believe that the Gospels were originally written in Hebrew uh, and that Greek probably around the same time very quickly. But at some point within the century or so, probably after 70 A.D., they uh, probably did a clean sweep through there, and it is what it is. So I think that I think that the push was done on Rome because Rome was already the bad guy. They could they could take the hit, and it would remove the the guilt of the the murders. Now, classic Christian thinking will highly criticize me on this. They will come out and say, "Oh, but no, we you know I I killed Messiah. We all killed Messiah. You know, we all we all drove the nails into his hands." Well, did you really though? I mean, like wh who would you rather be? Would you rather be uh, uh, Kepha who denied him and ran like a coward or Judas who literally betrayed him? Because there's a big difference between the two. Like how you see yourself does matter. Uh, and uh, yeah, so in the end, yes, he he died as the atoning sacrifice for our sins, but there's a big difference between who is guilty of the blood 
of of committing that awful deed. So I'll just leave that there. Next question, Sarah. Okay. It was a good question, though. Hatchet Men asked, why do you use BCE and not BC? Hatchet Man, did you have to ask me that? On, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I don't know why I use that. Um, uh, probably just to sound a little more scholarly. Uh, because later on, I do say BC, and um, I don't know. I mean, you, you guys see, like, in real time when I'm writing these things, I don't, sometimes I'm reading this stuff to you guys. I'm like, why did I say that? Like, sometimes I'll say uh, the Yahudim. And then sometimes I'll say the Jews. Sometimes I'll say uh, Jerusalem. And they'll say Yerushalayim. I'm like, why didn't I, why did I say Jerusalem? I don't know, guys. It just, it's, it, it, I don't know. Okay. Uh, Stephanie Penland was curious as to what do you mean by passion, by the passion account, like from the movie, The Passion of the Christ? Why is it called that? Pat, passion plays were uh, very popular and any kind of passion account uh, refers to the, man, you're giving me <laughs> questions I was not expecting. I was expecting all sorts of questions, but not these. Uh, passion, when anyone refers to the passion, it's almost like referring to the nativity, right? So you have the nativity plays, you have the, the, the shepherds in the field, you have the wise men coming, and you have the, the passion plays are referring to the, um, the, the betrayal, the beating, the judgments, uh, the crucifixion of um, Yahushua Hamashiach. So that's that's my passion one on one response, I guess. <laughs> Next question. Okay. Um, a blessed man and I think Michael were both asking and talking about. Um, more evidence for Utah being the promised land. And they were asking okay. about Utah. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I'm actually glad that one came up. Uh, has nothing to do with uh, Bazora Kifa, but it's a, it's a good one. So there has been, um, over the last several years, there's been a lot of talk of, is modern Israel the historical Israel? And... It's a, it's a good question. For those of you who've been around several years ago, back in the year 2000, I originally published, a, it's still on the, you can go to the, the Unexpected Cosmology, look it up. It was published by a woman named um, uh, Daphne, I can't remember, I'm, so, I'm sorry if you're listening, I can't remember her, her name. She wrote a very good article uh, putting into question that modern Israel is the historical Yasharel. And she gave the suggestion that North America was. Now, if you have been in this long enough, you will see that people are making claims that Israel is all over the world. There are people claiming that it is England. The historical Yasharel is England. There are people claiming it is Spain. The most popular one over the last decade is, I think, South Africa. That's the most popular one. Uh, there was somebody recently uh, claiming that it's South America, which I can't make heads or tails sense of that one. Uh, but I will say that North America is a very enticing enticing proposition. And uh, I was looking into this um, a, a couple years ago, and you guys saw I made a lot of snark remarks and, and saying that the whole idea of the new world, you know, this was Orwellian talk for the old world, right? And I still think it is. Uh, but 
I have now moved away after investigating that, after questioning this, I have moved away from that position. And I believe that uh, after doubting Israel as the historical land, despite all the archaeological evidence, I mean, the Red Sea crossing, the chariot wheels, Mount Sinai, um, you know, the, the, the there's, there's so much there, guys. I mean, they found uh, the... The, the place where um, Abraham was met by the two angels on the way to Sodom and Gomorrah, which is another one, Sodom and Gomorrah. There's just a lot of evidence uh, for it being there. So what I will quickly say is to anyone who claims that it's another place, by all means, investigate it, look into it. If you can give me good evidence, I can fall back on that. So far, I have only seen circumstantial evidence. Yeah, there's evidence. It's all circumstantial. There's circumstantial evidence to say it's Spain, it's South Africa, it's Texas, it's you know, it's California, it's it's South America, all these different places. And um, the burden of proof is on you to come up. You can't just say, "Well, I doubt it's Israel, therefore it must be somewhere else." And I'm going to find one little record in history say, "See, this 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 proves everything else," and it's this. All right, the burden of proof is on you. Now, here's the reason why, again, the Utah connection is, is, is the best, most fascinating connection I've seen. All right, I'll give everyone credit. Hmm. Here's the reason mainly why I think that uh, Israel is the historical land. Um, I finally came to this conclusion. I realized that uh, Revelation ends with it's cursed. Okay, this is the land of demons and devils. It's a place you don't want to go. Now, I'm not saying don't visit there on vacation, or maybe I am. I don't really know. That's up to you. But it's not a place you want to go, all right? Y'all would tell us this. I really do believe this. I don't think if you guys – I tell people if you prove that America is the is the promised land, I'm getting out of here. I'm gone, all right? Like, I know Whoopi Goldberg said that with the election to Canada. Well, I'm, I'm doing it. I'm gone. I don't want to be in the land, all right? That's not a place you want to be. It's done. We're divorced from it. Get out, all right? Um, so uh, – and it makes sense to me that Hasatan would want to, uh, Satan, if we just throw that term around, the, the prince of power of the air, that he would want to uh, create a false exodus to the land. It only makes sense that he would send a false exodus to the historical land. Just think about that. So that's my response on that. Um, good question. Thank you. Okay. That's fascinating. Uh, th that's something I think we could definitely talk about for a long time. And I, I yeah. love it when people bring up those questions because I have the same, I have the same questions. Okay. Um, John Q Adams was um, talking about, let's see, he said, so was the U S Navy keeping Torah when they buried Osama bin Laden at sea shortly after he was put to death? And then he said, well, it's, even though it might not have been a, a conscious decision, he says it's interesting that Muslims have the same tradition as Jews. And is 24 hours just for a death and before sundown the law? Or if one was put to death, is it different? <laughs> uh, I see John Q wrote there in the comments. He said, I brought this on myself. Um, <laughs> And I know that he threw that just out there to make this really difficult, which I pre that's a really good question. Uh, first of all, I would ask ask the viewer to to question whether Osama bin Laden was really killed in that raid. Maybe he was. I don't have a problem thinking he was just because. Well, I do. He was a CIA guy. Uh, 
I have written a paper on this that uh, Osama bin Laden probably died before September 11th. All right. I think he was reported dead uh, by the summer of 2001. And they had to really uh, they had to really cover that up because they're like, oh, crap, the guy that we are uh, using as the the patsy in this attack, he just died and it was being reported. They had to cover that up and push it through. And the whole ridiculous story that they carried on to when was he killed? Uh, 2009 or 10 or in the whereabouts there officially that he would, he had been dead by a decade by that point. Uh, so that being said, um, was his burial Torah? No, it wasn't because <laughs> they didn't bury him. I don't know how he was buried, but the, the point of the, uh, Islam uh, or the Muslims and the Quran and its connection to some uh, Torah-based issues, a lot of people, I, I, I almost don't know if I should say, say this just to protect the author, but one of my first, actually my first writing project that I ever did was a working as a ghostwriter for a, a former Muslim who um, was writing to people in the Middle East, trying to convince them that Yahushua HaMashiach or Yahushua is Messiah. And um, he used the Quran to do it. And so my first introduction to the Quran was through a guy who was actually using the Quran to convince them that the Bible's legit, which is interesting because the typical Christian ideas that we're to slam and say the Quran is evil and all this kind of stuff, and, you know, as if that's really going to win converts, um, you know, that's going to wake them up like, oh, yeah, you're right. Our Quran is evil, you know, and the, the people will point out some of the same passages in there, like how Elohim is going to come and kill all the, the, the pagans. And they're like, see, that it's like, well, wait a second. The, actually, the Bible says the same thing. So uh, that, that there's going to be fire raining down and, you know, he's coming and to slay the, you know, the, the bad guys. Well, um. So one of the things that he talked about uh, was that he believed that Muhammad, now, again, was Muhammad a, a, a Roman spook? You know, was he working with St. Augustine? People have these questions. But one of the ideas is that he, um, Muhammad was, this is really fascinating. Okay, so let me back up. So you have uh, Christianity, uh, according to the official narrative, and I, I would back this up, you have a, the crescent shape of the, the Mesopotamian region around the Mediterranean. So you think of Israel, Egypt, over to Ethiopia, and then you've got, you know, going through Turkey over to uh, Rome and Spain. That's where Christianity was. And so if you were a bishop, if you were in the church, you would be positioned there. By the time Muhammad came along, the church was well established. All right. Now this is going according to official history. And if you were a, if you were kicked out of the church for theology that did not agree with Rome, you were kicked out of that crescent and you were put into places like Saudi Arabia, the desert. You were trying to survive out there. These are the people that went to Muhammad, uh, the, the, or I should say Muhammad went to. He went and asked these people questions. And according to this author um, that I was working with, his opinion was that Muhammad was seeking the truth. He was actually seeking the truth, uh, but he spoke to all the wrong people because he was also on the outside of Christianity. Just throw that out there. I've never spoken on that before. Um, I cannot comment on the similarities between the Torah and the Quran. That I, I figure they would have many similar justice uh, scenarios. Uh, I can't comment on it because I haven't done a study on that. So, but thank you, John Q, for asking me an almost impossible question. I tried to weasel <laughs> my way out of that the best I could. 
Is it, uh, I mean, uh, is it even acceptable in the Torah to be buried at sea? Hmm. That's a good question. Uh, I'd have to look. Is there, I mean, does it, that's a good question. I mean, if you're, if you're at sea and you die and you're supposed to be buried within 24 hours, uh, I don't know. Is it permissible to carry that? That's a whole moral debate. I, I, I don't know. That, that's something maybe this room, that you guys can uh, hash out in the, uh, the, the Torah talk room this, this, this week. Cause I, I don't know. That's a good, I mean, when we talk about the Torah, right, you, you guys know my view on the Torah. Hopefully it, one that is developing much more is that the Torah is a, is a transformative document. Okay. It's, when, when, you, when people come over and they say they're Torah observance or they're Torah pursuant, as I claim to be, it attracts a lot of very zealous people, as I myself am. And I, that makes sense. Zealous people want to be obedient, whereas non-zealous people are like, yeah, I don't really like this obedience thing. That must be a false doctrine, you know, that kind of stuff, because I got grace, right? So you, you want to be zealous. You want to be obedient. So you see the Torah as all these check marks, right? I got to check mark this, 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 and this. And if I do these things, then I'm obeying the Torah and I'm good to go. Well, you see that this was one of the big problems in it going through like Isaiah and stuff where Yah's like, I'm sick of your feast. I'm sick of your, all this stuff. And I wish it would just stop it all because they were just checking off the boxes and they didn't have a circumcised heart. So the Torah done right is what I would call a gnosis. All right. Gnosis is a scary word for a lot of people. Gnosis is something that you cannot, you can explain to someone, but you can't really explain it. You can only experience it. Right, you can't. You can try to explain to someone what having a circumcised heart looks like, but you can't really know it unless if you feel it. That's the only way. It's it's the same thing as like for those of you who are parents and you held your baby in your arms for that first time, and someone could try to explain to you what what it's like being a parent, but until that moment when you're holding your own flesh and blood in your hands, this little tiny thing, and you're like. You're like, oh my goodness, like that, that's gnosis. That's something you can you have to experience, right? That's what the Torah is. All right. Now there's a point to all this. It's a transformative book. So people will go into this and they go, Oh, look, I can marry multiple wives now, and I can own slaves, and I can do all this stuff. But if you're reading the Torah correctly, the question should be: just because because you can, does that mean you should? All right. Who is always saying, Why do you want to go back to slavery to Egypt? He's Allowing you to be a slave, you can get your ear up to a door and get it nailed in, and you could be a slave for the rest of your life. But if you're reading Torah, you're like, if you're, if it's a transformative document, you're like, like, why would you want that, right? That that's the whole question. It's like there's something wrong with you if you want to be a slave for the rest of your life. It gives you permission to do it if that's what you want. Uh, so that's when we're reading. My big thing is when we're reading all these commands. All right. Please don't read me wrong. Yes, keep the feast, keep Sabbath, right? But when we're going through all these check marks of like, oh, should we, oh, we're at sea and oh, no, we've got to bury someone. It's like really like, like what is the heart of the matter here? What are we trying? We're trying to live a life, you know, a certain life by standard code to worship the most high. And checking off the boxes does not mean that we have a circumcised heart. Okay. That's, that's just, that's my conclusion. That's where I'm at. So. Awesome question, guys. Yeah. And by the way, John Q is going to get his. He's going to next time. I'm going to ask him the hard questions. So. <laughs>
Okay. And then you had mentioned something you were talking about the possibility or the or the idea that you're working on that Mount Zion was possibly movable. And so a comment came up uh, where it was regarding moving mountains. Michael, Michael brought this up and then he posted um, Matthew 17, 20 21 about having mustard seed faith. And yeah, yeah. Tell a mountain to move and it will. And then the, the, somebody else um, had another uh, thought. It was about an old song. There's so many songs that now mention mountains or castles in the sky. And that oh, there was some sort of either it might have been either Project Bluebeam or it might have been some sort of other technology that they simulated over China. There were some photos of that floating yeah. city and the floating castles. So uh, there was just some some discussion about the, what you were speaking about, about moving mountains. Well, I have to give it to Michael because this is one of the reasons I love Michael. And uh, he also didn't make this difficult on me, uh, which is to be noted and rewarded. Uh, <laughs> that uh, this is the, like if I were imagine if, if I were giving a you guys remember when Michael and I were going through the. Uh, our study, like on the, the Targum, and we went through the Hebrew Gospels. These are the kind of observations he would make, which is a brilliant observation, Michael, uh, connecting the, the the faith of the mustard seed being able to move mountains. I, I don't know if there's a connection to be made there, but I hadn't thought of that, and so that's a great uh, connection. And what I had mentioned earlier is that um, I had talked a little bit in my presentation on – the Hidden Wilderness, which was a book I released a couple months ago, and we were looking at like the uh, the, uh, the verbiage and so on and so forth of Zion being a, a potentially movable city, that it was a location that could go from one place to another. And we see this in like uh, in films. Uh, it was a castle in the sky. I, I mentioned that one, a few others. I don't have a lot more to go on on that, that just that the possibility that it is a movable mountain. And um, I was telling, I was talking to Pamela today, who is our local Paleo Hebrew uh, scribe reader around here. And, you know, she, she has blessed me in many ways in her, her research and ability to read this stuff. She was talking to me about like the, uh, the Thunderbirds of Native American lore, how they come from a, a moving mountain in the sky or something like that. And I'm like, whoa, wait a second. Whoa, wait, wait a second. I was like, we need to get together all our notes that we can find on movable mountains in mythology around the world and just put it together and do a presentation on it. So that's all I have on that. But thank you, Michael, for that observation. Cool. Um, Meredith, it's interesting. Meredith made a comment over in general voice chat. And not too long after that, John Q also made a comment and they, they sort of dovetailed with each other. And it, Meredith commented that it was interesting that both Esau and Cain thought there was no judgment or reward to come. And then John Q commented, interesting that Herod, a descendant of Esau, believes in the judgment to come, yeah. whereas Esau did not. Yeah, uh, and you know, had had Herod not believed in a judgment to come, I would have 
comment on that because that's honestly that's one of the things I was looking for. And um, that was the only thing that that was one of the things that was a little bit different in the telling from what we saw with the others. So, yeah, it it was it was. But as I pointed out with Herod, he's recognizing there's a judgment to come, but we see nothing in his response that leads to repentance. He's like, he's like, yeah, I see it's coming. I'm not going to do anything about it. I'm just a wicked person. My works aren't going to stand. Uh, you know, it's, it's sad because that is a human response that does happen. Sometimes when people, you know, it, so some people, there's like kind of like, you know, the, a, a path that parts, right? Some people recognize that there's a judgment coming and that makes them be like, I, I want to do something about that, right? I want to live a life that is, that's going to stand in that judgment. And other people, it's true. It's, it's just out there like, you know, oh, oh, well, I guess I'm just going to just, to hell or Sheol or Lake of Fire or something. That's my lot. You know, you see that too. So that does seem to be his position. Whereas we see with Herod, I'm not Herod, with Pontius Pilate and his wife, uh, there's a whole number of books and letters out there called the Pilate Cycle, which uh, I've published those as well. And in all of them, the stories are the same, that Pilate and his wife uh, were uh, repented. They turned, they were some of the earliest uh they were some of the earliest uh, converts, probably a huge reason why uh, Pilate was removed from his position as governor of Judea. Uh, and I will get into the study, which I also went over with some of you, how he was killed in Switzerland. He jumped off a cliff into a lake, died. That's according to the lost book, uh, the lost chapter of Acts. I think it's chapter 29. And it is my belief that he was probably suicided, though uh suicide is not out of the question either i mean just in a in a very shame culture he could have been driven to that as well so good uh that is all that's the two pages i think that's that's all <laughs> i was able to have so um thank, thank you sarah e so uh as you as you see that sarah here is is reading your your questions comments and we're going to be doing this hopefully in the weeks to come. And so you guys uh, make sure to ask me questions uh, or the presenter, because I'll be, I'll, especially uh, in next time John Q gets up to give a presentation, be sure to ask questions that week, like ask like 50 questions uh, on QAnon. And, uh, and what Sarah's going to do is she's going to get up here and she's going to read them off. And thank you so much for doing that. I think on this wow it's been almost three hours so thank you everybody through for sitting through this presentation as you can tell i'm starting to when i start to stumble and i like get my words backwards stuff like that it's because i'm uh at that point so we will reconvene in the the party room the after party room which is the, which is the general voice chat and we will do this again next week i hope to take you through another few verses as you can tell i'm putting tons of research and detail uh, details into this i hope you guys enjoyed this i hope it was worth your time i love bizarre kifa and i am going to be sh connecting tons of dots in this and showing you why uh, this was a uh, I think a very popular book early on until it no longer fit the narrative or no longer could be controlled and so on and so forth. We'll do this again next week. Uh, that is it, everybody. And with that, 
Shabbat Shalom one last time. I'll see you guys in on the other side, uh, which happens to be the next room over. So good night, everyone. So I, I, I did just want to quickly um, point out that there are some more questions that people have been tagging me in um, in the last 10, 15 minutes. And I don't know if you have the ability to see those or not. I'd be happy to uh, read the first couple ones to you. Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, just so we know, I think, Josh, Josh, are we still recording this or are we done? I'll answer them either way. I'm just curious. I'm curious because that will depend on how I answer. <laughs> he's Oh, he's still recording. Okay, so I have to answer a certain way. Okay, that's fine. So ask away. Okay. The first question is, is it possible that Saul, Paul, was a Pharisee involved in the conviction of Mashiach? Yeah, I mean, obviously, that's that's a question that many people have asked. Uh, like, it, that's not even like an you know anti-Paul question. That's something that, well, it is, but it's it's also a pro-Paul question. And you know, Paul never. I don't know. I mean, I, I to my knowledge. I haven't, you know, read the deeper Greek on this, but I have never seen him hold himself responsible to the actual crucifixion. And he does hold himself responsible. His own biographer, Luke, right? Uh, Luke, who's writing the biography for Paul in Acts, uh, has Paul responsible for Stephen's death, uh, for hauling some others off the prison who are unnamed. So I would think that if he was if he was directly responsible that he would be named. Um, but yeah, I obviously can't answer that question otherwise. That's just my assumption, my guess. Okay. And she had a part two to that question, and it was and i'm I'm assuming that the reason she's asking this is that um that possibly this theory is used as um, one possible idea or possibility for those that believe that, you know, Yeshua did not raise from the dead. Because this question is, do you think the theory that Paul murdered Mashiach and then stole the body is a viable theory? No, I don't, I don't believe that's a viable theory. I've, I've heard theories that, you know, Joseph of Arimathea stole the body. I mean, okay, here's the thing, guys. All right. A part of me could care. Hear me out on this. All right. A part of me could care less if they stole his body. Now, the Gnostics have a saying, and I'll be quoting from it later, in, particularly in the Gospel of Philip. I'll be quoting from it later, which they say, that if you think you die first and then are resurrected, you have it all wrong. You have to first resurrect and then die. All right? That's Gnostic thinking. Now, some people are like, well, that's weird. Well, if you grew up in the Baptist church, it's the same thing. They have to say you have to be born again. If you've ever been to a Baptist church, and I was in the Baptist church a lot, when you give your testimony, they want to know, like, they want to date. Like, when were you born again? Now, you guys know my position that being born again uh, ex exoterically refers to the moment when we are when we are resurrected. Um, however, they there is a point to this that um, 
I am of the conclusion that resurrection does not necessarily depend upon a physical body. I'll give evidence for this. Uh, in the Passion accounts, uh, in uh, in Nicod well, Matthew talks about the bodies that rose from the grave. Uh, they like the the tombs cracked open at the earthquake at the crucifixion, and then three days later, after Mashiach resurrected, they also resurrected physically. Well, if you read the Gospel of Nicodemus, it talks about two types of resurrections. There are those who physically resurrected. But then there are those who spiritually resurrected. They never went into physical bodies. They were resurrected and went straight up to heaven. So you're like, wait, what? So I don't think this is a cookie cutter uh, incident. I think that it is, you know, people are going to cry. No, everyone has to be. No, I don't think everyone has to be physically resurrected. Uh, I do, however, believe Mashiach was physically resurrected. And the reason being, it, it's, it's very important in the story. And I quoted from Psalm where it said that uh, his body would not see decay. And in fact, that is a purpose towards Mashiach because Kepha recites that in Acts, I think it's chapter two, two through five, right in there, uh, where he says, he quotes from that say that his body did not see decay. So I do believe uh, that uh, I, again, I, I guess I, I don't care if his body was resurrected. That body, whether, I mean, sorry, let me, <laughs> it's getting late. I don't care if his body was stolen. That stole, that body, whether stolen or not, was resurrected. All right. So maybe it was in some other person's house and like, oh, and he res, but uh, I obviously don't believe that he came out of the tomb. He was physically resurrected. So that's, that's my, my conclusion. Um, again, I would have to say on this one, particularly, uh, the burden of proof is on anybody to prove that he was stolen and not physically resurrected. I would say, actually, in this case, the burden of proof is on that person because in all these texts, it makes it clear uh, that he was. So 